Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. We've got She-Hulk Episode 3, The Deep Dive for you today. Tim Kelly joins to go scene by scene through She-Hulk Episode 3. And then we'll finish up with the old wrestling rewatch. Andrew Champagne joins me to dive into SummerSlam 2002. A fantastic show. Top to bottom. Some of the biggest stars that you will ever see all on one card in the history of pro wrestling. Really fun show to dive into. So She-Hulk with Tim Kelly, scene by scene, and then we'll get into the old wrestling rewatch with Andrew Champagne. On this episode, that's what G said. That is presented by Better Than Dot Vegas at BTV Bets. Give them a follow. Football season is coming up. We'll have lots of content over there, free content free game previews for college football, for NFL. In fact, in just a couple days, we'll have an episode of That's What G Said that previews NFL Week 1 with Eric every single game right here. So if you need extra help in the NFL season, give a follow to Better Than Vegas on Twitter, at BTVBets. Let's jump right on into it. Episode 3 of She-Hulk. Tim Kelly joins us as we have our week-by-week recaps now and uh we had the first two all together because we were uh, a little behind with episodes one and two but now we're all caught up so every time you're ready for the next episode of she-hulk come on over here first listen to the deep dive and see where we'll take your mind on these episodes right now it's part three up next it's time to talk episode three of she-hulk the people versus tim kelly now, <laughs> Emil Blonsky is the title of episode three. So, Tim, we had both episodes one and two to talk about last week when we you know, had our first conversation about this show. It feels to me at least kind of like in episode three, this might be a little bit like we, we may have sort of found the template of the show now after yes. the first couple. I think we'll we'll kind of get something sort of similar to this where it's like kind of a courtroom show a kind of a courtroom comedy show and maybe each week there's something that jen needs to do needs to accomplish needs someone that she needs to help um the first couple episodes maybe help lay the origin story and get everything set up but i've also heard that they may have kind of switched around the order of a couple of the episodes to maybe have it play out a little bit better how are you feeling right now after episode three I definitely got that same vibe that you did about the template. That's a great way to put it. Uh, I feel like the show's hit its stride a little bit in this episode, and we're starting to see all the pieces come together and see what the show is going to be. You know, the first episode, a pilot, is always kind of its own animal. Uh, And then the second episode is always kind of like a second pilot. There's a lot of groundwork to be done uh, and, and, uh, you know, world building and introduction of characters and things like that. So you have to kind of set the stage before... Uh, the, the characters can really play in it. Uh, and I think that's what we got in this episode is the characters were allowed to play a little bit more. And it was a fun episode for that. I do wish that they pushed it just a little bit further, a little bit more weirdness, a little bit more um, jokes per minute uh, that land. Uh, not, the the comedy doesn't particularly all land for me. Uh, it's a and little it does, safe. It's not, it's not super potent to me either. It's not making me gut-bustingly laugh you know i, I it's just kind of cute I, I chuckle yeah i kind of chuckle to myself here and there and it's 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 just light fun uh i do think there's a lot of room though for them to really push that and and get some great comedic moments and situations out of it 
and we uh yeah we we had a huge huge cameo in this episode oh, yeah. megan yeah. the stallion multiple <laughs> yeah. grammy award winner she's in here in the uh, mid credit scene she's twerking yeah. which was just pretty funny like that was a yeah. kind of uh, a cool moment just to have her sitting here twerking so she's yeah, in the mcu the canon she's an mcu yeah. canon now <laughs> i do enjoy that but let's not forget it it's a she hulk show it's not a cameo show now that's true uh, that's true it's her yeah. show it's her show yeah. it's all it's all about the big green woman um mm-hmm. we so there are there are a couple things they they also do in this show and what's what's interesting about um what we've seen with some of the the recent marvel mcu projects on disney plus some of the the shows, the more recent ones, so the Miss Marvels, the Moon Knight, the right here, these are newer comics. These weren't comics that were the old established comics that have hundreds and thousands of of you know episodes and different storylines. And so we don't with, with a lot of these, and this was the same thing that was happening in like Hawkeye and um some of these other shows. We never really know exactly what direction they're going to go. It's not as if they're they're taking the text and exactly transporting it from a book, right? It it's not that mm-hmm. way. Like they take little pieces of things, they take characters' names. Sometimes they do things just to completely screw with us. In this particular episode, we were introduced to Gideon Wilson, who is Emil Blonsky's former attorney. Now, what's interesting about that is in the comics, that's actually Sam Wilson's older brother. Um, oh wow! I didn't realize that he's heavily involved in World War Hulk. Um, I believe mm-hmm. there's something to do with his son gets killed, and he he kind of blames it on Hulk, even though it it wasn't anything to do with Hulk. Now it's it's interesting that they use the guy's name, Gideon Wilson, because when you think of Wilson, you may have th- thought of Sam, but we didn't have anything any ties to it. You, I... you never know. This is th- these are the kind of things where it may be just a total coincidence. But if we right. find out down the line that this guy is tied to Sam in any way, shape, or form, that wouldn't be that big of a surprise. I kind of like like this with the um, like I, I like this era in that mm-hmm. we don't really know which way they're going to go with a lot of the source material they're using. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, there there is a, a deep well of source material to draw from here. I mean. Uh, she Hulk was created in 1980, so it's it's not like it was created yesterday. Yeah, yeah, but she's still, not like Miss Marvel. Compared- yeah. Compared to the Hulk, which was created, I think, in the or 60s. Captain uh, America and, or yeah, you know, some of the 40s. And you know, these are old characters. I mean, decades and decades old. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I do think that now that we're getting more to the more peripheral characters, the later created characters, that it does open up a lot of opportunities for, for reinterpretation. And uh, MCU's always uh, been reinterpreting the, the characters uh, to, to fit the screen, uh, I think, sometimes for the better. Um uh, most times, probably for the better, and then uh, occasionally uh, you get your taskmaster, which is not 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 my favorite. Um, but but uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, we're gonna have a lot of fun uh, on this series, particularly in reinterpreting characters in in a fresh way. Even characters that we've seen in the MCU so far, we're gonna see a different side of them a little bit, a lighter side, a funnier side, uh, a sillier side uh, of of them. Uh, and I think we got to see that this time around uh, with Wong, which I really appreciate. Oh yeah. Just looking at Wong's LinkedIn page, you know, mm-hmm. he, he worked at Target for, right. uh, yeah. you know, 
for like eight years or nine years, which is uh, great. And um, Wong making a crack about how he doesn't want to erase everyone's memory again. You know, we just yeah. did that. That can get very dangerous. So it was, it was cool to see Wong here in the Wong cinematic universe, obviously. Right. Um, and yeah, just like a fun feel to a lot of the episode. We have two different court cases happening at the same time here. Well, we have uh, the parole hearing for Blonsky where Jen's trying to get him released while at the same time we're having P- uh, Pug needing to defend Dennis Bukowski, one of the most awful people in the world ever yeah. created uh, because he was duped by an elf <laughs> who's a shape-shifting elf named right. Runa who pretended to be Megan the Stallion. So it is kind of another, I keep I said the word cute again, but Mm-hmm. They had a moment where Jen broke the fourth wall just to let us know, hey, look, the A storyline and the B storyline are yeah. coming together right now, which I did yeah. think was, okay, that's funny because there are a lot of times where we, there are things happening that didn't maybe get uh, connected in some of these shows that people have complained yeah. about. So she was making right. a point of letting us know, hey, look, storylines coming together. Um Yeah. I actually had had uh, I was kind of mixed on that line. Like I appreciated, but at the same time, I was like, "Is this a, like a little too inside baseball?" I feel like this was a, a joke for writers and for for and you, critics, not really yeah. for just general audiences. And some um, of the, some of the things don't hit, but you can tell they mm-hmm. have a decided approach to just have fun with it. So I'm hoping in yeah. some of the the more episodes, like you said, if that's going to be their approach, then really lean into it. Yeah, like if you want to really have like, fun, like really mm-hmm. have fun with it. Absolutely. I, I love when they really lean into the idea that it's her show and she's talking to her audience about the show. And that, I yes. guess that's an element of that, the A and B storylines and whatnot. So I, I think that that's going to kind of separate uh, this breaking the fourth wall from maybe what they're doing with Deadpool, which is a more general fourth wall like meta uh, commentary. I, I feel like what they're doing here is going to be more specific to TV and, and the format. And it feel this really does a uh, couple things that I, I heard with the guys on the Ringerverse that we're talking about um, in the last couple of days. This totally feels like a TV show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like sitcom. Ver- versus some of the other things that we've seen, or even like recently when, when Obi-Wan was on, a lot of people said that felt like a mm-hmm. six hour movie broken down mm-hmm. into episodes. Yeah. Like this feels like TV. Like Absolutely. this feels like you're watching something on, you know, ABC or like NBC, you know, in the like mm-hmm. ten a decade ago, or it it just has that vibe. And for some of the critiques I'll have, it's definitely not perfect. None of these, none of these are. It's just no. so easy to watch. Mm-hmm. Like it's such an yeah. easy watch. It's so quick and like breezy to get yeah. through. It's just not like, um, well, it because it's it's light, you know, mm-hmm. it, for. For uh, I'll give them a major positive because what they did with this show, which is kind of good, is they made it seem really important right away by having Banner in here. Mm-hmm. But but then at the same time, Banner leaves on this spaceship, and we're not even really asking questions about it. Right. We're kind of yeah. like okay, just having fun in this legal show with her. So they they do make you feel like you're back in the MCU because we're seeing Banner and Wong and Blonsky and all of them. Mm-hmm. But what I do like is. It doesn't feel like the world's going to end tomorrow, which can't always be mm-hmm. the case. Yeah, you have to have smaller stakes stuff that that feel 
big and important to the characters that you're following. Uh, it, yeah, to your point, yeah, it doesn't have to be the world is going to blow up every single time. That gets a little bit one note. And uh, you can have stakes that feel just as high that, are, you know, center around a girl in high school, like we saw uh, with Kamala Khan. And uh, mm -hmm. in this case, we're seeing it in, in you know, courtrooms. And I, I love that this is absolutely taking a more farcical, um, comedic approach, approach to that, you know, that arena uh, courtroom stuff can be very stiff and I mean, it can be very exciting and dramatic and whatnot, but um, it just doesn't jibe well to be too heavy handed in, in a courtroom story uh, for, for comedy. That, yes. that, that doesn't really work. So they've, they've found a tone here that I think works. They're not taking the, 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 the crimes that they're exploring too seriously. I mean, no. we're dealing with a shape-shifting uh, catfish no. here, and we're yeah. dealing with a an escapee from prison who didn't you know hurt anybody. You just went to go fight in a kumite. You know, the stakes aren't, you know, there's no, uh, you know, Sam Jackson standing up saying, yes, they deserve to die. I hope they burn in hell. Like, I can never <laughs> picture that happening in this series. They're never going to explore the topics that would lead to anything like that in a courtroom scene. Yes, um, this is a decidedly uh, more, like you said, breezy uh, topical show. And you know, I, I heard, I heard one uh, opinion that had said maybe this would have been a a good show to drop as a binge. Like, yeah, I think like so. Like a, a full, a full eight or nine episodes at once because it's so quick and you move mm -hmm. through it so much. Now, I like like it's an, it's fine each week, but because of that lower stakes. Does maybe week seven, eight, nine, is it, are you going to feel as like week to week as important if there aren't like the cliffhangers there, right? Is it going to keep you as invested? Not as, not as, it's not entertaining, but this is one of those shows where I feel like, damn, I might've been able to watch this thing in just like one sitting in like three hours. That's what I was thinking about these first three episodes. I almost uh, lamented that I didn't just get to watch them back to back to back. I almost feel like I would have liked them better. There would have been a flow that uh, I, I, I don't know, I think would have elevated yeah. the, the experience a, a little bit, the fragmenting of it from week to week, um, yeah. I think pulled me out of that world a little bit. Uh, and it, it, it is a different kind of tone to this show. Yeah, so the I vibe feel like is you different. Have to settle, you have to settle into it a little bit. And so I feel like watching a back to back might, you know, actually help out that experience. I will say I just watched um, Moist Critical. He's this uh, YouTuber. I think he's a Twitch streamer guy. Uh, was really hammering the show. A, a lot of people are on YouTube, uh, but he, he watched it, you know, back to back to back and uh, found it just to be utterly boring, which I can't blame him for because I do agree that there needs to be more. Like the, the comedy is there. It's just not funny enough. And I feel like the writing is, it's got its strong points, but it's just not good enough. And it makes a lot of really bad mistakes, I think, with the way they characterize people um, the way that they kind of are a little bit too heavy handed with trying to, to we touched on this last week, make the men characters uh, feel, uh, you know, if somebody's bad on the show, like there's just out on the surface bad in a way that just doesn't feel natural or, you know, motivated. Uh, yeah, like I don't mind. Logical way. You're like, <laughs> let's, let's give you an example because I'm on social media a shit ton, right? Like I'm posting yeah. stuff there all the time. And so, I mean, I see some brazen berserk 
responses to things. <laughs> so I actually think I, I I thought the part where like a lot of the posts on on TikTok and stuff, I kind of thought that was mm-hmm. funny. I even sent you a thread that I saw on Twitter yeah. the other day that was sort of that like was this. That was like it was almost exactly like the scene where there's all these guys that were like, so really. Would you wish She-Hulk? You know, and like all these guys right. were responding to it. But like Dennis, so so when I see some of those guys, and you and I have even talked about it with all these other shows, like some of these shows get bomb reviewed just because mm-hmm. they have a female in them or just because yeah. like they're taking, you know, like uh, Kamala Khan and it's someone that's ethnic or foreign that mm-hmm. like a lot of like white american males don't like and so I, I i think sometimes like the tiktok videos and some of them like we're we're, we're like listening to proud boys you know talking about like what yeah what, like oh no i can't believe this is another girl in here Th- those things i don't mind like little clips and stuff like that when the character mm-hmm. of just dennis in general he's just like yeah. he's just like a little too cartoony for me i mean he's fun. just yeah. like so so such like a parody you know yeah, you couldn't be that successful, like in well, the that, world, and the key, be that right? How can that he? Terrible. That was the one thing that I immediately thought when they have Jen testify to talk about how stupid and incompetent he was. <laughs> right. Which I actually thought yeah. that was kind of funny, right? Like that was, but wouldn't someone immediately say, "How is this guy a lawyer?" Yeah. How'd you pass the bar? How'd anybody hire you? Like you have to be somewhat likable, and it, they show in the in the episodes that. Nobody likes the guy. The, the men, the men don't jive with him. Like he goes to shake his hand, like uh, and yeah. and he does that. He does the fist bump thing. That's something that happens in real life. But the way that they showed it there was like hand was out, like firm handshake was was offered, and then the guy goes to give him a fist bump. Like, I know. It, like, but you already saw the hand out. It only happens when it's simultaneous. That's just bad writing, right, right there. <laughs> at least bad execution. It, so yeah, um, definitely not perfect. Um. The for for all the negatives of it, I <laughs> will say that the like the breezy pace of it doesn't weigh it yeah. doesn't weigh it down. Like even when you finish up and you're like, oh, right. there were some critiques here. It just doesn't feel like heavy or like it was a big waste or anything. You still come out sort of like, oh, okay, nice. I'm curious what happens with Jen next and where we're going. Some towards the end of Miss Marvel and then in towards the end of. Moon Knight with Khonshu and stuff Some of the times where it's like Okay now we went from Kind of in this fun story to now Okay the world's gonna end You know mm-hmm. like it just sort of got there quickly To where like oh now the veil's open And oh now Khonshu's here and this is turning back And uh, so now yeah. I, I just like That it does feel like We're dealing with Jen Each week and her, and her problems And for one mm-hmm. of our critiques Last week was okay she, Things seem pretty good for her Right, I think we're right. starting to see that a lot of the issues she's going to have are like internally with herself, not wanting to be this superhero, this She Hulk, not wanting to deal with the celebrity that comes with it, the backlash, the positive and the negative. We're seeing her get the positive of celebrity twerking with mm-hmm. Megan the Stallion, you know, and then the negative when you know she walks into the the prison and they're telling her that she got rejected by the avengers and that she has uh, Emil Blonsky's baby you know so yeah. she's dealing with all of the the positives and negatives that come with you know being a, a public in the public eye and being a celebrity so that'll probably be part of her uh, kind of part of her journey also in her struggle just kind of finding herself out because physically yeah. she hasn't had many you know, even if she gets attacked and then immediately she 
dispatches of all of the attackers. Physically, yeah. she's not having a whole lot of issues with her hulking and and the, the process of going back and forth or any any of the same issues that Bruce dealt with. Absolutely not. And yeah, that was, I mean, an early critique that, that we had. I was like, why, why would you write it that way that she wouldn't have to deal with the same thing? Uh, but I guess, you know, as, as we said last week, maybe it's to open up opportunities to, to explore other challenges in this series and not be at one note again. Um, I do want to see more, though. I, I, again, it's just I feel like they're not doing en- enough to, to, to challenge her. I, I don't see her struggling that much, and I don't see her personally overcoming things all that much. Um, I see two things that uh, kind of catalyzed her um, like a realization in this episode. One was uh, the inhibitor at one point. Uh, she suggested to use that. And so she uses that to, to solve the case with, with Blonsky. That was suggested by a man. Uh, and then there was another one where Blonsky uh, basically says to, to face, you know, the, the press and, and get out ahead of things. So it's, she, she's not really coming to these things on her own. She's like having other people kind of tell her, you know, the answer. So we haven't really seen her solve problems kind of on her own yet. That's something that we haven't really seen why she's so awesome, except for, you know, she's a natural at, you know, all this Hulk stuff. Let's dive on in to She-Hulk episode three, the people versus Emil Blonsky as Jen works on freeing Blonsky. We get the previously on everything that happened in episodes one and two and the Marvel Studios title. Jen arrives at prison to see Blonsky and she's she's pissed off. Obviously, she just had a conversation with him and he didn't tell her how he left prison and was in like an underground fight ring, which we saw in Shang-Chi. He tries to make her feel better. Hey, look. I said I choose not to turn into abomination anymore. These were extenuating circumstances. Um, she's letting him know, look, this was a this is a whole different crime. There's no way you're going to get parole now. He says, no, look, I was forced to leave my cell, but I returned on my own free will. And she asks, how, who, what happened? And we actually see Emil watching the clips on this, like, flat screen, like... In his cell, this technology is just awesome, huh? Jeez, he like he's got like a Tony Stark cell here where he can like pull yeah. up like clips of anything. Um, he lets us know the Sorcerer Supreme of the Mystic Arts, and his name is Wong. Just Wong. Nikki informs us. <laughs> so Jen's paralegal Nikki is giving Jen the rundown on Wong. Jen called her assistant and asked, "Hey, can you find anything out you can about this Wong fellow?" Well, he's either a, a sorcerer who lives in New York or a librarian who lives in Nepal. And and <laughs> we also see that uh, Nikki sent him a thirst trap. It was a picture of me with a bunch of books, <laughs> which yeah. I just I loved. So um, Wong is obviously a mystery to many people out there. They need to get in touch with Wong because he's going to be a key character witness for their case here. Um, what did you think about our first scene with Jen walking in, interacting with Emil, and then uh, her talking with Nikki? Well, she came in to uh, to interact with Emil with a lot of fire. She was angry. She came in confidently again uh, this time. There was those laser bars that kind of lift up as you as you pass through them. Uh, and uh, the last time she encountered them, she was kind of put off. This time, she just 
confidently walked right through. Uh, that was a fun scene. Again, Blonsky has a pretty good argument for why he's not at fault here. He does. Pretty sound. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he lays it out. Uh, so I thought that that was all pretty logical and it, it, it made sense. And I love the opportunity here to get to see Wong in this context, to get to learn a little bit about him. Uh, the fact that he worked at Target for seven years, uh, it, it's silly and it adds a, a layer of of realism to it uh, that is unexpected and uh, I, I would say appreciated. So I like this a lot. And Jen is so Jen's driving and she's on the phone with Nikki at this point. And there's a moment where she's talking, she's talking on her cell phone while she's driving and she stops talking to Nikki to break the fourth wall. And um, when she breaks the fourth wall, she takes her hands off the wheel, but mm. behind her traffic is kind of continuing on. It's kind of a cool like visual and look. It's sort of the opposite of like Zach Morris doing the timeout, yeah. you know, yeah. or, or others. Cause I'm I'm wondering about it, and this was the first time, Tim. Right before she broke the fourth wall, there was a little noise. It was almost like yes. a like well, a cute. magical wand or like a wiper, like a like a like something you know that yeah that came right before, um like a little buzz. So I'm curious yeah. if we if we'll get this more. This was really the first time I I remembered hearing this, and mm-hmm. um, she lets us know. I know. You can't wait to see Wong. I get it. But I just want to make sure you know this isn't one of those cameo every week type of shows. It's not. I mean, except Bruce and Blonsky and Wong. Just remember whose show this actually is. So, yeah, I I like that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I thought that that was probably the funniest moment of the show for me. I really liked it. Uh, And and I I liked it because it just made me think about the moment. I love meta moments. It made me kind of wonder about how her – fourth wall deal works you know what, what i kind of mentioned before how that compares to to deadpool is there like a like a diegetic you know reality to what's going on there is she talking to someone actually like within the story or is this just kind of like a mechanism of the show which uh, that's what i'm leaning on now is i think it's more of a mechanism and a function of the show uh that that she talks to us uh, and I, I really like that about it it's just approaching the show as a TV show, using the medium for what it is and, you know, all of our pre-existing expectations, uh, kind of twisting those up and uh, and uh, serving them back to us. So I, I like uh, I like the the playing with the medium here. So that's a lot of fun for me. We get the She-Hulk title card. And now we get looks at how uh, Jen's being covered in the news. Attorney Jennifer Walters of law firm GLKNH has been tapped to represent Emil Blonsky, known as the Abomination. In his upcoming parole hearing, the news has stirred up much controversy ever since it's been revealed that Jennifer Walters has a superhero alter, uh, alter ego, She-Hulk. The statuous green lawyer has been plagued by public backlash with many questioning her qualifications. We see a Spanish news report on YouTube, social media, TikTok videos. They took the Hulk's manhood away and they gave it to a woman? I don't get it. Why are you turning every superhero into a girl? And then we just get a right. scroll of... Videos, posts of people reacting to She-Hulk So we have a Me Too movement And now all the male heroes are gone I have no problem with female heroes Just just saying, make your own And then we get one I don't know about y'all, but I'd smash <laughs> These are all actual criticisms that were taken right? online and, and then they you know, remixed them a little bit And served them up again to us uh, 
just to keep that keep that motif going. Um, I, I thought this was good. Again, uh, more meta commentary, uh, and it was very apt in in this moment. It it, uh, it fit the the story context and it fit the uh, the commentary of the show uh, in general and what we're seeing online. It's uh, kind of a foolproof approach to uh, to criticism. You just uh, beat them to the punch. You Eminem eight mile it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You be rabbit it. You just throw yourself all, all of your flaws out there, and then they don't have any more material. <laughs> what are you gonna do hey, about it? Fuck my girl. Exactly. Still standing here screaming, "Fuck the free world." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so now we uh, we meet Gideon Wilson. He's having a news interview. This was the prosecutor who put the abomination abomination away all those years ago, and he doesn't like what. Jen is doing he said anyone that would Work towards freeing a monster like this You know so mm-hmm. He may be someone who we see That has to oppose Jen because She went you know um, And they're on opposite sides Here he was trying to put abomination away Jen has been now defending Emil Blonsky so Nikki and Jen Are talking all about the the public Backlash and I will say at this point Jen doesn't seem all that phased. She seems pretty focused on the case, and she seems pretty convinced that she has a case with mm-hmm. Blonsky, and she thinks that she's she's got a shot to really get him off here. Yeah, absolutely. The arguments there uh, again, you know, it, it, it's it's a sound, logical uh, reason that she just has to explain to this uh, this parole board here and, and and get him to to believe it. So Wong's the key to that. Uh, he's a he's a key witness here, and he's responsible for. What happens uh, as as they kind of allude to later? Like he may have actually, you know, he did commit a, a serious crime in doing that. So Wong might have to answer for that at some point uh, if they can get a hold of him. But uh, yeah, this is a strong case, and so she's she's going to pursue it uh, to the best of her ability. And um, I think she's just as she thinks that she has just as good of a shot at at winning this case now that she knows the circumstances as she did at the beginning. And for someone who's like pretty smart and and pretty well together, this is just like a blind spot for Jen. Like Nikki's telling her too, right before Wong tells her, or before mm-hmm. Blonsky tells her later, "Hey, just control your narrative here." Right. Right. Like this is what you wanted always to be a big lawyer to have big cases like this. They're going to be talking about you. People want to know every detail about your life. They're flooded with calls for interviews. Go do one. Yeah. Nah, exactly. I don't want to do that. I'm going to focus on this and that. And so, for someone who's really smart, she's having people telling her, "Look, if you just go yeah. like take the narrative and just take it by the storm, it's going to be better for you." Um, but it, yeah. it takes her a little while to to sort of get that. Um, but Nikki tells her, and then even later, uh, Emil finally is the one who seems like he gets through to her. Right now. Nikki gets a call or uh, Jen gets a call from Mr. Holloway. So she has to go in and uh, and see what's going on, um, what her next case might be. And waiting in Mr. Holloway, Holloway's office is Dennis Bukowski, Jen's old co-worker, rival, absolute garbage human being. And he is not a fan of Jen. He says, no way, not Jen Walters. We have too much history for me to be comfortable with her on the case. We don't really know why he's in there yet. What is his case? What happened to him? Because remember, this is the superhuman law division. So this isn't just some regular court case. This has to have something to do with some sort of superhero and some sort of powers. And that's what Jen Mm -hmm. asked. I I would love to know what this is about. And 
It looks as if Holloway has kind of just called a couple of his top lawyers. I think Mallory Book was the name of the one woman who pokes her head in. She's also kind of a a rival of Jen in the comics. And then Pug is also in the mix. So he probably called a couple of his you know top lawyers to come in and hear from Dennis and see who wants to take the case. And God, Dennis is just <laughs> the comment he makes. He said uh, when Mallory comes in, he says, "No, I can't talk to a ten about embarrassing man stuff. She could be right. my next fiance." <laughs> it's it's Mallory, funny, but it, it's not because it's like that would never. Ha- you just don't believe. It's like a lawyer is. in a law office right. that's trying to have people help him with his court case. Right, right. He's, He's being, not going to be acting that way in that in that setting. Right, he'd have a little sense of a desperation, like uh, I want these people to help me. I need to be on my best behavior. I'm going to be polite. Like even sociopaths know how to like uh, manipulate. You know, uh, they they know how to you know get in the situation and 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 yeah manipulate people and, and stuff like that. Like the bad people don't just on their surface like act like this. You know what I mean? Well, you're not it's, just it's bad and stupid. This. You might be bad, right. but if you're bad, right. sometimes you're like smart bad and you know how to work people. You're not just stupid and bad. Yeah, like, the just, bad will reveal itself, you know, in between, you know, the actions. When you're late are, at night having a drink mask. and you accidentally get reveal your plan, right? It's just not like right. over and over. Yeah. Where, but there's there's zero like a, attempt at the character to even show any kind of um uh, any kind of manipulation or any kind of like try to try to uh you know finesse you know that's people would would try to i don't get what they want out of a situation you know good people bad people they do this all all the time no matter what but you know if a person is existing in the world and has any modicum of success they're doing this to a degree uh and, and this guy's just completely Hapless when it comes to that He has got no sense of You know what is going to go over well With other people at, at all And that just it just doesn't make any sense It just well, feels just, like I don't know people like this here. Right like yeah. you just I, I If there are people like this I don't know them I don't know someone who so, I guess maybe there was one that was in charge I, Like we, we can I was gonna say Maybe there's one that I can think of that uh, Had a pretty big prominent prominent place of power Recently but other than that sure. you don't usually See stupid and mean people You're maybe you're stupid mm-hmm. or mean One of the one of the two um, right. Yeah so They're they're trying to Make a case here for Dennis uh, Dennis doesn't want Jen or Mallory He doesn't want to deal with the women here because Embarrassing stuff but he sees Pug Says he a lawyer? He looks cool. I'll take him. So, uh, he, Pug's gonna help him out. Um, he's been defrauded by an ex girlfriend, and he wants to file a suit against her to get his money back. Dennis lets us know. Yeah, I bought her jewelry, flew her to Bali for a photo shoot, paid off her Volkswagen uh, pass, uh, subscribed to. And they, they interrupt. Okay, but that make okay. We understand why the superhuman law division. Well, she's a shape shifting light elf from New Asgard. He said, to be fair, I thought I was dating Megan the Stallion. Yeah. And so Jen, he thought Megan the Stallion had a Volkswagen. That's that's exactly what <laughs> that's she said. She yeah. says, You you thought you were dating Megan the Stallion, multiple Grammy Award winning megastar, Megan the Stallion. You thought right. you thought she drove a Passat. Yeah. Uh, Crazy. So Dennis got duped. Uh, but what's uh, what's helpful 
as this case is going on, or as you know, she's talking to Dennis and she's realizing I'm not gonna have to take this case and do anything with it. Wong actually arrives via a portal. Um, yeah. he received her message. So Jen goes in the other room to talk to Wong, and and we have Pug taking over here. So Pug's gonna be the one to uh to help out with uh with Dennis. <laughs> um the Megan the Stallion, little uh little shout. So I will say that's one of the things that if this show ends up being a little disappointing and then the next six, five or six episodes aren't all that great. One of the things that you will remember from this show is Megan the Stallion and the twerking. That's yes. like one of those things that will definitely stick out when you think about this show years down the line. So they'll at least have one or two of those uh, those moments or those things that you will immediately think about when you think about She-Hulk. I'm for it, by the way. I, I, I want to put that because that, that was a divisive thing. Oh, I me too. I love the, it. The, the, I liked it at the end. It's a, it's a post-credit scene. Uh, so it, it doesn't detract from anything. Even if it was in the actual show, I almost want to like that better. Like I want them to push the weird and to push the funny uh, a lot. I saw one joke about this that just had me rolling. It was a meme of uh, like basically it basically boiled down to uh, she hope or Jennifer Walters would be unstoppable when she learns to combine these two things. And then it was a photo of the the, the twerk. And then the Hulk's thunderclap together. Oh, so when she can make it clap, she can make oh it my god, clap for it. Oh, that's she, funny. she's gonna do that, some damage. So yeah, that is amazing. I thought that was beautiful. Great stuff. So um, a Wong arrives and he tells Jen everything you told Mr. Blonsky is factual, or everything <clears throat> everything Mr. Blonsky told you is factual. I extracted him from the prison against his own wishes. I required a worthy opponent as part of my training to be, become Sorcerer Supreme. And as Sorcerer Supreme, I insist that he not be punished for my actions. Like he's I the president of, of the of the world or something. I know. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's even hilarious how, like, when Wong comes to testify and then, like, he has no realization at all that he's admitting to crimes here. Right, and like yeah. and like stuff that could have him seriously put away for a long period of time here, like, um, so I, I like the w- Wong is a as a good treat in this episode. You know, Wong is always a nice treat. He's great, yeah. and um, he does end up being extremely helpful to Jen. Uh, he actually mentions the mirror dimension though, and the shadow dimension, and he says, mm-hmm. "I know what you're thinking, and I'm not erasing everyone's memories." Referencing Spider Man. So uh, Wong tells Jen, yeah, you know what? I'll help you. And then if if everything doesn't go well, we'll reserve sorcery for strategy B. <laughs> so, um, yeah, nothing too crazy here. It's simple stuff. Wong just agrees yeah. and he just basically tells her how, yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll help testify and be a character witness. And so that's, now- that's a template of the show you talked about. You know, yeah. I mean, this is it. I mean, just characters from the MCU could be main characters we've seen or it could be side characters each week being introduced getting a little bit of a focus they're the the hero of the week the case of the week this is a very episodic format uh i know it's got a serialized element to it where we're you know we're, we're continuing from week to week but it's definitely doing the episodic thing you know where we're exploring a, a new story each week that's kind of self-contained and uh i think that's that's a whole lot of fun and there's so much to draw from there so uh, really cool element, and again, that's that template you were talking about. And now for the rest of this episode, what we really are doing is kind of cutting back and forth between the two different cases. We a have and the B. 
Yeah. Yep, the A and the B. On the A side, we have Jen Blonsky and Jen dealing with the parole hearing. And then on the B side, we have Pug, Dennis, and Pug dealing with trying to get Dennis um, some of his money back, trying to get Dennis a win in the case to where he's going to get restitution for the money that he spent when he got uh, when he got catfished. So yeah. Pug is he's having the, the little like inf- information meeting here with Dennis. He's trying to get all the yeah. background and everything. Like, okay, Dennis, tell me exactly what happened. And of course, Dennis is all embarrassed. You know, he's not even being honest about stuff. Yeah. And he's it's ta- like, how much money did you spend? On Megan the on the Megan the Stallion imposter, and he doesn't even want to admit it. Pug says, "Okay, how about I tell you a number? I say a number, you tell me higher or lower." He says, "You bought her a midsize Suzanne, fifty thousand. He points up, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. Dennis laughs, two hundred thousand. I'm not a fool. It's more like one hundred seventy-five thousand. <laughs> that that one actually made me laugh a little bit, right? Because that's not just I liked it too. Yeah. Him being yeah. like this, like a horrible person. Him just." That's something that that I could see a stupid person, like a stupid yes. kind of person, saying, right? Narcissists but, do that yes. too. Yes. Narcissists think that everyone else's mistakes are the worst thing in the world, but their own mistakes are all justified. That's a, yes. that's a key trait of narcissism. So this was this was funny to me. Like, yeah, yeah, like if it was beyond the mistake he made, that's ridiculous. Yeah, but you know the mistake that he made totally just one seventy five. So this is actually funny. Yeah. So Pug agrees to start building his case. They shake hands and Dennis leaves And Pug starts doing his work And he's looking online He finds a video of the the imposter Of Runa, that's the name of this elf She's the uh, She's a shape-shifting elf from, That is uh, in New Asgard And he actually looks on What their YouTube is called You Scream And he finds this video But then immediately Dennis walks back in He says, what's up bro, how's it hanging man I've got a change of heart. I'm going to drop the case. Pug's a little confused. What? What? Dennis interrupts him. You know, truth is, I think deep, deep inside, I knew. I gave those things because I wanted to. I was just embarrassed to get found out in such a public way. You know, at some at some point, you just got to take personal responsibility. <laughs> Pug is, like, really confused here. And Dennis is is being such, like, a an upstanding person here. You know, just this is not Dennis at all from what we've yeah. we've come to learn. He said it's just money and now you know now I've got a story to tell But moments later Seconds later Pug gets a phone call From Dennis How the mm-hmm. hell does that make sense Isn't Dennis sitting in his office right there in front of him Well no that's actually the shapeshifter So <laughs> the elf Came in and tried to pull another fast one um, But Pug Catches on And has Runa leave Calls security but as Runa leaves the shapeshifter on her way out, she actually disguises herself to look like Pug and tells the office, I love harassing women in the workplace. It's my kick, baby. <laughs> Pug's like, oh, man, why did you why'd you have to say <laughs> that? I really don't. Sorry, ladies. You know Just me. You know me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, like, I, I didn't mind a lot of this stuff. I like th- this stuff was fine and, and kind of cute and silly. Um. Uh, it was okay. I'll, I'll, I like. I, I like Pug. You like, what do you think of Pug? Pug's Pug's okay. I feel like again the writing doesn't serve the character here uh, because Pug doesn't catch on to what's going on in the moment. Like we as an audience, I think know it immediately that this guy's the shapeshifter, and Pug is a lawyer working on a shapeshifting case 
nothing really makes sense in the, in that moment. I, I would assume that he would be onto it as as well, but he's he's dumber than the audience in that moment. I think that that's a that's a little bit of an example of of uh, kind of betraying the character and the reality he of the does, character. Again, he's a little aloof for a lawyer. Like he he does seem mm-hmm. like he's a little bit of like. Well, because he's the man. He's the man lawyer on the show. It's representation yeah. uh, in reverse. Uh, in in a way, I feel like they're they're trying to do some. They're 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 really putting representation first here. So they're trying to present all the women characters as very put together, supportive like p- kind of perfect. And then the men at, at, at best, they're going to be a little bit aloof. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's like a good guy with like with his head on straight, but he's still a little bit al- aloof and not totally with it. And I now think that's I guess just kind of how they write characters. I will. I'll for, for the critique that we have about that at this part, I'll give them a little bit of credit mm-hmm. when he does kind of put it all together and figure it out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and ultimately yeah, more, realizes minor realizes when Jen makes the comment that like, oh, this could work because the initially when he does have Jen come up to testify, mm-hmm. Dennis is like, what the hell is going on? Why would you bring someone that hates me up there? How is this going to help me? Yeah. But so I guess yeah. in that point, I'll, I'll give them the credit for that. But here you're right. Like I just in reading in like some of the stuff about Pug in the comics, he's a love mm-hmm. interest of Jen. And mm-hmm. I just don't think he needs to be so like dumbed down. You know, like he just does yeah. seem like a like a little boy almost, you know, he does. Uh, uh, I'll say this. I, I wonder if they're planning uh, if they're trying to kind of subvert uh, a shift later on for him to be maybe a more nefarious or evil character. There's something about the actor there that makes me think that he's going to be a villain. I don't know if I it's know. in the portrayal or if it's just something that this guy's eyes look? like the, like I'm, the I'm, look yeah, i know look to it it's like the facial like... hair and the look almost i'm like thinking might come lead us to something you're right there's there yeah. it feels like there's more than meets the eye with pug yeah there could be uh, so far sure. so uh we now flash back to jen uh walking into the prison and the reports are outside the prison where we have reporters all over the place covering the story and they're trying to get questions with jen Wait, is that her? There's She-Hulk. Can we get a word? Is it true you were rejected by the Avengers? That was Jennifer Walters, also known as She-Hulk, rumored to have been rejected by the <laughs> Avengers. <laughs> now, it's funny they keep um, going back to this because there's mm-hmm. a storyline in one of the comics when she actually gets thrown out of the house of the Avengers that they all live in because she parties too much. Because she's drinking oh, too much and partying too much. <laughs> so they do kick her out. She has her, like, you know, full circle moment where she comes back, but um, that's something that they're kind of joking and, and leaning into. She walks in for the parole hearing, and Emile's cell is lowered into the room where we have you know the three or four parole board members sitting there, ready to hear um, the case that Jen's about to make. And their key witness Wong is not there, so they're they're a little bit nervous because pretty much every. Their entire case leans on Wong. Yeah. Um, Pretty much. So what I love is the soulmates in the back. We've got the seven soulmates here yeah. watching in the background that look like they were plucked right out of um Midsummer. <laughs> yeah, like know. one of the documentaries I've been watching on the Mormons, you know, like keep sweet sure, and pray. Yeah. They look, they're all wearing their white dresses, and yeah. they're named Blair Ruth, uh 
Morda, Sheila, Alejandra, Yvonne, and Nicolette. So he's got his seven, his seven soulmates, like a cult, all dressed in white. They're watching and hoping that he gets released. So this is, you know, like what you would imagine a like a, a small parole hearing is, but because it's in this max prison, they actually have the hearing while he's in his cell and they're all yeah. around him. And uh the hearing begins with the parole board. We're here today to determine whether Emil Blonsky is suitable for return to society after having served his minimum sentence. In light of recent evidence of a prison escape, I think we all know how this is going to go. So let's keep this brief. And so That's what of, judges say before, right? before uh, that wouldn't totally invalidate the proceedings. I was going like, to say, this sounds like a, a pretty fair proceeding here, right? Yeah. Like, uh, but Jen, you know, she's got a job to do. As Miss Blonsky's counsel, as Mr. Blonsky's counsel, I would love to address the alleged prison escape. We have a witness who is able to clear Mr. Blonsky of any wrongdoing on his part. They say, okay, let's start with that. <laughs> she says, well, the witness that. is prepared to give a statement after Mr. Blonsky gets hit. She's got she's to buy as much time as possible. It's not like yeah. Wong's got a cell phone. Right. Right. She, she can't just get a hold of him. She got, she, maybe she can send him another thirst picture with some books. But who knows how long that'll take? You know, it worked yeah. the first time. But uh... <laughs> it's kind of inexcusable, though. I mean, when you can teleport, I mean, it's like being late for a Zoom meeting. There's, there's just no excuse for it. You, you can just sit right there and click. Can't blame Come traffic. On. One yeah. click, one click, Wong. <laughs> um, now, Emil, uh, Emil states his case. They ask, "Do you feel like you've been rehabilitated?" Let's start by saying I feel great remorse, great shame to those that I've harmed. I thought Tim Roth was great. He's I thought he's been really great, like just playing yeah. this like guy that thinks that he's like a new age guy now, you know, and he's yeah. going to have a meditation retreat and he's got these soul sisters and I love them. And um, he says, I feel like I've been rehabilitated. I spent every day of my incarceration focused solely on redemption. I have changed emotionally, physically, metaphysically, spiritually, karmically, cosmically, interdimensionally. And Jen, she just, I love that when Jen will cut him off when she feels like he's going a little too far. Right. She's like, God damn, he's reading these like online things or like, how should you respond to a jury or how do you, how yeah. should you talk to the, the officers, you know? And he's saying every single thing that you should, like, by the book, perfect. And, She's yeah. almost rolling her eyes like okay, it's too much. On. You're laying it on yeah. too thick here. Come on, you know. And this this is a great example of of what didn't work before uh, with Bukowski. Uh, with, with just uh, here's Blonsky, who is kind of he's kind of being a jerk here, and it's being revealed in, through the subtext of the dialogue uh, and the reactions to him that that he's not being sincere or that maybe he's not totally a good guy and there's c comedy to it but it doesn't feel like false because he's trying to seem good he's trying to get something there's a motivation to why he's doing that whereas with Bukowski it's like he's just he just wants to um it, it just say whatever's on his mind without any kind of a filter or any kind of attempt for get to get people to like him or to get what he wants even it's almost like that that's not even a part of his, his uh, thought process. So it just reads as false. It reads as like no one would do that. Uh, uh, and this person wouldn't exist. Whereas Blonsky here, as silly as it is, you see, oh, he's trying to get something here. He's he's maneuvering and he's there's a motivation to why he's speaking the way he is, even if he's not nailing it. And that's what makes it funny. Uh, 
but he's still trying to, and and it makes sense. It's logical. So Jen goes on. What Mr. Blonsky is trying to say is the man you see before the man you see before you is not the same Emil Blonsky as before. <laughs> um, all he wants now is to be a contributing member of society. If so, that then the parole board asks him questions that anyone would ask. If released, would you have a place to live? Yep. He has a plot of land on which he plans to work and reside. And the woman on the parole board, I, I like the woman. She seemed like she was very fair. I think I don't I don't think this was a coincidence that it was the black woman who was being very fair. Right. Like she was giving right. him a legitimate case versus the older white man was like, screw this guy. Let's just throw him up and like, who cares? You know, but it was right. someone who may have had who have probably dealt with crap through their life, like wanting to ask the fair questions and give someone mm-hmm. A fair shake um, And so she kept asking like How is he is he going to go into farming What's what's happening you know, like, <laughs> yeah. and then Jen I love how like uncomfortable About just talking about the seven Sisters Jen is like the soul Sisters mm-hmm. she's like oh this is Awkward like this is a cult and these women And this guy actually sounds sort of like he's okay, but then we have to talk about these women, and this is gonna yeah. come up. Like, it's like Undermine this is like this character, <laughs> right? Yeah, because he, he does for as for as much as Emil might come off a little bit phony. Mm-hmm. If he's got the character witnesses that are saying that he's like this time in and time, like day in and day out, you know, like it it does help his case. But then you bring these seven women, where it's like, oh yeah, these are my soulmates. We're all gonna live together. Yeah. Like that starts. That starts sounding like something you would get thrown in jail for. <laughs> yeah, know? and I mean, one of, one of their approaches was to have a bunch of character witnesses, too, that make him seem like such a great guy. And then you have, you know, a bunch of wives next to if you're a, like an open polygamist, that really undermines that sense and makes you seem like you're, uh, you know, some kind of cult figure, a dangerous man. That's not what they want in that moment by, by any stretch. So Jen says, Mr. Blonsky is currently in a long-term committed relationship with several pen pals. Who have pledged to financially support him. Reframe, reframe. <laughs> yeah. And so he says, Yeah, Blair, Ruth, Marta, Sheila, Alejandra, Yvonne, and Nicolette are my soulmates. We met through the prison pen pal program. The next two little lines, I I literally laughed because he said, They are my better eights. And then <laughs> and then he looked over and he says, Love you. And he like does this Amazing. little thing with his tongue, like he does like yeah. a little flick, but he said it in like a like a high pitched like love you, you know. Yeah. And it was man, I laughed. It was really funny. Fun. Like it was it was great stuff here. And then Jen is just so uncomfortable. I don't think we need to get into that any further. Yeah. Uh, any other questions? She she just wants him to talk less now. Yeah. Uh, like Absolutely. hey. Let, let me do the talking. So let's start bringing in some of these character witnesses. We've got Sean Holt, the prison literacy director. He's a counselor and he really likes Emil. He says he started mm-hmm. the prison's literacy program and uh, now the library is more than just a quiet place to shiv someone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we get the uh, one of the the librarian it says that he leads guided meditation and yoga for the prisoners. Uh, instead of toilet wine, prisoners make toilet kombucha, you know, and uh, uh, one of the cops, the guards, Carl, who's been dealing with a, a tough time in his relationship. Emil gave Carl advice, and now Carl was able to leave his wife and Carl's crying and Emil's like consoling him. It's OK, Carl. 
don't worry about it you know it, yeah. so he's like a model citizen here um yeah they all Toilet love kombucha too that that I, that's making me laugh more now that i think about Thinking it about it right I yeah that how was... disgusting that would be to make to actually have toilet kombucha that would be the worst thing i can probably think of right now so funny um so the three witnesses are done now they're waiting on wong and wong is nowhere to be found jen's getting nervous phew okay here comes wong he he appears right in the nick of time right before uh they need him and pretty simple um wong sits down and he starts to you know tell what happened but we're going to flash back and forth. We're going to cut to our B storyline and the other court case, Dennis versus the elf. Um, so the elf's lawyer wants all charges dismissed against the client. Runa is the daughter of an elf diplomat in Asgard and now a new Asgard. As such, she has diplomatic immunity. <laughs> <laughs> the judge disagrees. Um, but El- Runa, the elf, starts to plead her case. Excuse me, your honor. But Asgard is not a place. It's a people. She starts giving that speech about yeah. New Asgard. Uh, the judge interrupts. Thor's inspirational speeches are not admissible in court. <laughs> and he just shoots her down immediately. Um, Pug takes control. Says, Your Honor, this case is very cut and dry. My client was defrauded 175000 by a scam artist. He deserves compensation for the financial and emotional trauma that he suffered. The elf's lawyer jumps back in. He says, no, my client and Mr. Bukowski were in a consensual relationship and they engaged in role play. No rational adult would have believed my client's texts were from the real Megan the Stallion. Mr. Bukowski knew he was dating Miss Runa and went along with it until it no longer suited him. A relationship gone bad, not a scam. Pug jumps back in. He was blinded by love. He absolutely believed that he was dating Megan the Stallion. But the judge is having a hard time believing this, Tim. The judge says, like, how can anybody be this stupid? (laughs) (laughs) Which is sort of what we've been saying uh, about. uh... So, TK, this is one of the things we were talking about. The judge doesn't believe that Dennis is so stupid to be fooled that easily. And that's that's what Pug's going to have to prove in the trial. The judge does agree to grant Pug the opportunity to prove the case. So... Motion for a trial has been accepted. So I guess step one for Dennis in his case is a positive. They're going to be able to go to trial. Yeah. uh, And at this point, I wasn't sure where he was going with this. uh, But uh, this is a witness based uh, episode here, I guess. Like the, the, the linchpin of both cases are about a key witness here. And so I guess we're, we're going towards, Jessica being the key witness in this case because she knows better than anyone about what an idiot Bukowski is. Or I think you said Jessica, Jennifer, I think you mean. I think. Oh, my God, Jennifer, Jennifer. what am I saying? (laughs) I was was like, Jessica, who the hell is Jessica? Who's Jessica, by the way? Is this this a different show we're watching? Jessica. (laughs) um, Same name, same name. So just like we saw earlier after Dennis walked out of Pug's office and then Dennis came back in, the judge just left. And now the judge came back on the bench and said, in light of some new information I've just received, I'm changing my ruling. But now Pug calls it out. He's seen it before. Says, come on, Runa, this is getting a little broad. And actually, Runa's lawyer is kind of mad. Hey, impersonating a judge is illegal. Get down from there. So add a little something on her uh, um, 
on her uh, add a little something something a little to add to all of her wrongdoings, and they're actually going to give her yeah. for that <laughs> for that also. It seems like that's a uh, the the case is done right there. You would assume like they right? would have to throw it out. Like can that's, they continue at that? I feel like that's case closed. You don't even need to go to the uh, to to Jennifer Walters and get her uh, or Jessica. You know Jennifer whoever, or Jessica, whoever her, her alter ego. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, we don't need Je- Jennifer or Jessica for, to win this case. Uh, we we want it right here. So we're back to our A storyline. Back to Wong testifying. And uh, he says, in regard to Mr. Blonsky vacating his cell, I gave him no choice, but it was absolutely his choice to return. I offered him asylum at the Comertage, which is lovely this time of year, (laughs) but he was quite adamant to be returned to serve out his sentence and repay his debt to society. So Jen takes this and says, perfect. So you see, Emil Blonsky was forced out of his cell against his will. And even when offered instant freedom, he chose to return to his cell. Those are not the actions of a criminal, but of a reformed man who truly wants to do the right thing. Nicely done, Jen. The parole man asks, but maybe that's Emil Blonsky, but what about when he becomes abomination? Isn't he a raging monster out for blood? And Emil says, excuse me, if I could just put your minds at ease. And he starts taking his shoes off. And Jen looks at him and she can... Realize what he's about to do She can sense it and she's trying to stop him No 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 no. please don't do this don't do this But he thinks And it ends up actually working out for him Mm -hmm. Um, Look if I show them That I can become abomination And I don't do anything Maybe this will help and that's exactly what he does He becomes abomination Initially everyone is scared Seeing him transform into this big monster Woman in the background screaming Jen's trying to calm them all down when Jen tells him to change back, he does. He listens. He covers himself with a towel so that he's not butt naked when he transforms back from abomination to a meal. Oh. But this actually does really help her in proving her case. She says, ladies and gentlemen, I beg you to forgive his enthusiasm. He didn't intend to frighten anyone. But this proves in every instance he could have broken free, but he chose to remain in his cell. As his stellar prison record reflects, he spent his entire incarceration practicing a strict regimen of training, self-discipline, that he may walk among his fellow citizens with no chance of becoming a rampaging abomination again. He deserves a future as a free man and as a productive citizen. She did a great job there. Yeah, pretty cut and dry if you ask me. Yeah. Uh, I honestly thought that that was a great thing for the case. Uh, it almost didn't make sense in the moment. I, I was questioning, why is everybody freaking out so much? Like he's he's changing, but he's calmly changing. Like you can tell by the demeanor that he's not going to do anything bad. And he's behind the glass, which we are assuming is protecting against the abomination powers anyway. It's Hulk proof, I would imagine. Uh, so what is everybody so afraid of? I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit. I thought it was overblown a little bit in that Me moment. Too. It seemed like a good move to do at the time. So I was wondering why Jennifer was even, um, you know, against it at, at first. Everyone seems so afraid of it. I guess from the context previously that the last time of abomination was out uh, and about, there was a lot of destruction that had happened. Uh, maybe people died, I'm assuming. Uh, but um yeah, it, it just, it t- again, took me out of the reality of the situation and it felt a little bit illogical. Now uh, the parole board says they're going to consider all the facts And then they'll reconvene once the decision has been made But as for Mr. Wong And Wong says, just Wong 
Sorcerer Supreme of the Mystic yeah. Arts Leader and former librarian of Comartage He's got this Daenerys thing going now Yeah You know Where he's gonna, Yeah He's gonna tell us like uh, Mother yeah. of Dragons uh, Queen of the Unborn From House Targaryen You know He's gonna go through all of yeah. his names um, I will say This was one of the funniest things Of the episode to me mm-hmm. So He says uh, You know The pro board man says to him Yeah you realize you've just admitted to facilitating a prisoner escape, which is a crime. When when he says which is a crime, when he says the yeah. W, within yeah. three seconds, yeah. Wong is out a portal. Within yeah. three seconds. Just the quickness of which Wong says, I must depart. And I counted, I, I, stopped, yeah. I counted it. It was three seconds of screen time from when yeah. that was said to Wong was gone through a portal and out. I I mean it was so like I'm out and just Yeah, boom. it was great. I, I just I yeah, I, I chuckled so much and uh yeah, so Wong is a fugitive basically now. Wong 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 on the run. I maybe we You're got wondering. another another show here. Wong, you know, like uh Jen leaves the prison. And as she walks out, she's been ransacked by all these reporters asking questions. How do you plan to take Blonsky down when he rampages again? What about claims that you're one of Blonsky's rumor soulmates? Uh, is there any truth to the rumors that you got your powers from a mafia hit got wrong? Now, was that a nod to Daredevil? I, well, I wanted to point that one out because that was actually a nod to in the comics, Jen gets shot in like a crime spree. Or she gets shot by like uh, some criminals, and the reason why she becomes She-Hulk is because of a blood transfusion. Bruce has to give her a mm. blood transfusion to save her life. So it was actually kind of like a mafia thing um, that happened. That was sort of a nod to what happened in the comics, to how she actually got her powers completely. I didn't realize that to how it happened here. So um, that was kind of cool. Just a little line in passing that you may not have thought about, but that was. Uh, the a, a nod to the comic storyline there. Uh, I, I immediately thought Daredevil with his dad getting which, tied to the mafia, Bobby, and that absolutely makes sense as we know Daredevil's coming in here, and he may be right. here as, as early as next week in our next episode. And maybe they're trying to make us think about the mafia just in general, and in mm-hmm. the way that they were just kind of sprinkling the idea of the multiverse yep. uh, on us, like earlier on before they really actually explored that. Now we have uh, Nikki and Jen drinking at the bar as uh, Nikki reminds her, look, this can go away with one interview. Good day, L.A. They're thirsty for you. Just go do it. The genie's out of the bottle, girl. You're a story now. She says, I don't want this. I cannot wait for this to be over so I can go back to being a normal, anonymous lawyer. So they're you know, just sharing their drinks, and their buddy Pug walks over. He's exasperated. He's been working on this Dennis case. He's like, "Good God, Dennis Bukowski, what a piece of trash this guy is!" You know, you know what a what a piece of work. Um, and this is when Jen breaks the fourth wall. We've talked about this moment a couple times. We're a little split on it, but she mentions like, "Do you need to go this heavy handed and say?" But she does mention, "Look, this is important. We're connecting the A story and the B story." Um, so. Pug asks, how did you two work with him for so long? And immediately he can sense that they both hate his guts. And Nikki said, oh, I almost killed him in my head several times. And Jen says he was convinced that she had a crush on him. The man is almost terminally deluded. I'd call him gross. Just gross. 
Pug gets an idea. He says, hey, would you be willing to say that under oath? <laughs> so the next flash we see is Jen getting on the stand to testify. And uh, she swears herself in. Um, I swear I'm about to give the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And Dennis is asking Pug, like, what are you doing here? How is this going to help? Pug says, don't worry about it. You know, just just trust me here. Um, so he starts asking, questioning Jen. Would you say you know Mr. Bukowski fairly well? Yes, we worked for several years together at the DA's office. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time with him. Did he ever share his personal life with you, specifically his dating life? Yes, he would, prolifically and unprompted. And the, like, these are the things of Dennis that bothers me. Like, mm-hmm. he's sitting in the courtroom and he says, you wanted to know. <laughs> right. You know, which again, <laughs> yeah. It's funny to say, but like if you just think about the reality of the situation, yeah. they're in a court hearing. This guy's a lawyer, so yeah. he knows what's going on. And at, at this point, he can sense that this is going to be something that's going to help him. I, mm-hmm. It's just yeah. like, are you going to be chiming in during the questioning here? You know, um, yeah. there's like no self preservation in it. There's no, it, like, he, the motivation for him to win this case would outweigh the, the, the motivation for him to chime in in this moment. You would assume that at least. Although, but, although uh, I will say mm-hmm. that is one of the reasons why some people plead the fifth and don't go in. Like they just don't right. want to answer questions and they're embarrassed to talk about things that have happened in their life. They don't want people to know publicly. So I guess, yeah. but that's when you're brought up as an, uh, like a witness. Not I, this just, that was the one thing when, when he starts talking, I'm like, mm-hmm. Really? A lawyer like a lawyer is chirping. Um, Pug asks Jen, how would you characterize Mr. Bukowski in relation to his romantic life? Self-absorbed, chauvinistic, conceited. He once described himself as a New York 10 and an LA 11. And the court the courtroom laughs a little bit. And he nicknamed his office the Dennisphere. I actually uh I like that. this made me laugh because I started thinking of the Dennis system. From it's yes. always sunny. It's right always sunny. Here, I was like, so oh, man. funny. I was just thinking of it's always sunny because of how farcical those characters are and how ridiculous and over the top they are in the way that they act. And yet, yes. I don't really have a complaint about them, but there's something different about. It. I think it's because they push it so far yes. that it, 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 it the comedy is there, the the jokes are there, like uh, that. It's not. This, which is kind of playing it safe a little bit, but then pushing the character really far in in this one direction that just I don't know, it just doesn't quite land or feel real in this world. Also, I think the world of It's Always Sunny uh, is kind of built in a more of a comical way, even though the other characters all seem to be kind of like you know the straight men, the like the 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 crew, uh, you know, the, the core characters and it's always sunny. They're all like over the top crazy, but like the people they re- interact with in the world are pretty much normal type characters, um, except for like the McPoyles and various like extreme examples. Uh, but, but you get that, you get that kind of clash and that's, that's where the funny comes in uh, of these over the top characters clashing with these straight men characters. But for some reason, this world just doesn't have that clash in the right way. Like the tones don't g- gel or, like or if it bounce was Charlie, off each other. Like, for example, if it was Charlie sitting there where mm-hmm. Dennis was sitting and he right. was objecting to things, it would come right. off better. Yeah, I don't, You know what I mean? Like, it's just 
He's not a lawyer. Like you could see Charlie well, okay, sitting yes, there, that too. like objection, yes. relevance, and they're like, Charlie, shut up. You know what I mean? Like people would be like, Charlie, you don't right. get to talk. You know, like. But that's a great point. Yeah, because the, none of them are lawyers. The, all yeah. of them are basically losers on that yes. show. So, so there like that is was, no justification. It's like, like when they yes. go to meet with the lawyer all the time, and they're always trying to talk legalese right. with the guy, Love and he's it. like, "Oh my god, stop!" You know, like that would that would be better. But the fact the the sheer fact that the thing that doesn't work the most for me with this Dennis guy is that he's a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Like that that's the thing yeah. that doesn't work the most for me. And if a successful was, lawyer, like a if very he successful was, lawyer. Like the brother of somebody else or the cousin, right. like, you know what I mean? Like someone's friend or someone's annoying. I, 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 there would be a way to bring him in and not have him. I just, it's a little disingenuous, like, you know? Like uh, the other thing I've, it's so funny that you mentioned arrest uh, or that you mentioned. Um, it's always, it's always tiny. tiny because I'm also thinking about that and arrested development this whole time. Yeah. About how those characters are, can be silly over the top. It's a farce. But the laughs are there. It's so funny. And you never question the validity of this over-the-top character, somebody like like a Job. But Job is not a successful lawyer. He's like the a, a, a kind of a doofus. Well, first off, son he's of an analropist. First right. off, Job is an analropist. <laughs> no, no, you're thinking of now you're thinking of Tobias. No, oh, we're Tobias. just getting oh, names here we go. Yeah, I was say, mixed Tobias, up all over the place today. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say Tobias is the analropist. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Go, makes go, makes go. a great business card, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, Job is just a, a nepotism baby. He's not like a successful lawyer. And so the show doesn't have to justify how this character can be both a, a success in the world yes. uh, and this this bumbling idiot. You, you kind of can't be both uh, or you have to find a way to balance it where you're a bumbling idiot in certain areas, but you're you're, um, you know, pulling extra weight in other areas, almost like savant. Uh, you know what I mean? Like there, there's, there exists that. I mean, there's duality and you know, there's uh, depth to people where you know you can be a good person and a bad person. You can be, you know, kind of smart in one area and dumb in another area. But you can't be a hyper successful lawyer like this character is supposed to be and be that that dumb and bad with people. That's just that just doesn't make sense. It's bad. It's a bad premise to start with. Now, uh, Dennis, yeah, objects. The judge lets him know you're not representing yourself. This is your witness. You know, like, what are you doing? Um, But Pug goes on. It's been stated many times in this courtroom that a man of reasonable intelligence would never think he was dating the real Megan the Stallion. In your opinion, Miss Walters, do you think that Dennis would believe that he could actually pull Megan the Stallion? Real quick, yes. the, the way that the actor delivers that line here bothered me for some reason. The way that, that he I could pull it, her, right? Yeah, the way the the way that the, the, the first of all, I don't think a lawyer would phrase it that way. Again, so we're dealing with like something where it just doesn't feel it's kind of betraying well, reality. That sounds with, like uh, Dennis would scene. say it. Right, exactly. And then the other thing was, I felt like the the actor was was overacting in it. I felt like he was he was trying to make the line more than what it was. Like, pull Megan. That, like I felt like he was trying to have a moment in there when it was just a line, just just deliver the line, just make it. I don't know. It was it was overacting in my mind, and it stood out to me in a weird way on both watches that I had. So uh, Jen says yes. Dennis Bukowski is an almost pathologically entitled man. He would absolutely believe that he's dating the real Megan the Stallion because he is truly that delusional. No further questions, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing <laughs> further, Your Honor. You know, I'm thinking uh, well, Jim, Jim Carrey here. 
as uh, the judge. Oh, and liar, liar. Yeah, right. Liar, liar. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah. We've Speaking of, one. in the post credit or in the post uh, credit scene, there's a, a scene where, um, it, what is it? They have the the bloopers and the the opposing attorney. They're they're shouting like objection and then she just gets up and goes over actor so it's yeah. just kind of funny that i was just yes. pointing out overacting and That's then great. i don't know we bring that up that is great you're, you're right um <laughs> now the judge rules in the case of bukowski versus runa i award full damages to dennis bukowski in the amount of one hundred seventy-five thousand. in addition we also sentenced the defendant 60 days for impersonating a judge <laughs> and uh in the courtroom is Megan the stallion? She stands <laughs> I, up and I like says, that. <laughs> That's right. There's only one Megan the stallion. Make <laughs> some noise. And uh, so a fun little cameo spot from her. She just pops up real quick. But then as they walk, as they leave, Dennis is asking, You guys think I have a shot with her? Should I go back? I <laughs> think I really could do that. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but Dennis does help Jen. As you referenced earlier, I wish he says, I wish there was a way we could remove that elf's powers and make sure she doesn't victimize anyone else. Jen gets an idea. She looks at us and said, Dennis, did Dennis just give me an idea? That'll stay between us. So she heads back to the prison, the DODC prison. And basically what she's done is she thinks about what Dennis said, what she learned from Bruce earlier uh, in the series. And they have uh, a condition for Mr. Blonsky's parole. Mr. Blonsky is granted parole immediately, but he must wear an inhibitor in, perpetu- uh, er, in perpetuity. Any violation of this condition will result in his immediate return to prison. So he's free, but he has to wear the inhibitor that keeps him from becoming the abomination. He seems very content with that. He thanks Jen. I love how he says, thank you, Jen. I'm in your debt, you know. Spiritually, of course, just to, just to, right. not sexually or anything, right? Like just, right. just spirit. I, I've got my seven, my seven yeah. over there that I'm, I've got my hands full. And uh, <laughs> she says, just stay out of the news. That's all I ask. Um, <clears throat> but he says, you know, you might want to reconsider that. They're going to write a story about you one way or the other. You better just be a part of it. It's better to be a part of it. So he right. kind of gives her the nudge. So <clears throat> now in back to back scenes, as you had mentioned, it's. First, it's Dennis, and then it's Emil kind of helping get her to the point where she needs to be. Yeah. Yeah, so I thought that that was kind of kind of weird because I, I, I want the character to have some kind of justification for why she's so awesome. And I want her to kind of come up with, with things on her, on her own, I guess. I don't know. It, it seems like a weird kind of cop-out, and it seems like antithetical to what the show is trying to do i agree it's it's a little bit off with a lot of the show that's that's having the women whether it's a good or or bad or not like the the tone and the idea is hey these are smart women that don't need as much help from a lot of these other guys right but in this particular show (laughs) yeah in this particular case it was like back-to-back things that jen needed to get a little bit of a push now yeah so that was that was weird a little bit. Uh, I, I had a little bit of a yeah. I, I agree. Know, complaint there, but whatever. She goes on the news to give her interview, and uh, the reporter the reporter talks to her. The abomination is now a free man here in the studio. The lawyer responsible for his release, She Hulk. Yeah, my name is Jennifer Walters, not She Hulk. My client's uh, Mio Blonsky. And the guy says, "Got it." 
The high profile nature of this case and the fact that you or yourself are a Hulk has catapulted you into the public eye. So tell us, how did you come up with the name She-Hulk? <laughs> Funny, uh, some random guy on the news came up with it after thinking about it for like two seconds, but it stuck. So now whether I like it or not, I'm, I'm She-Hulk. Great, we have to take a break. When we come back, She-Hulk shares her diet and exercise secrets. What? Like, she didn't get to say anything, you know, yeah. anything at all. But this is sort of how a lot of these things go. You have like a minute. They want to ask you a question if you can't answer right. it or if they don't get their point. It's just on to what's next. Uh, she yeah. diet and exercise stories. But at least she's able to get out front, put a face mm-hmm. on there, and nobody thinks negative drama stuff. Like she's when you go out and show your face. As Blonsky said, you do get ahead of the story. And as Nikki let her know earlier, you're able to control your narrative. Exactly. And she's still battling what, like you mentioned there, like the sort of framing of the newscasters and, you know, everybody. But she has more of a say in it now. She's able to right the ship a little bit. And you can see that uh, in the moments, you know, when she's on there, she she corrects about the origin of her name. And, uh, you know, that that's a, that's a kind of a important for a character right there but uh, and i think it's a likable moment too because she's she kind of uh goes with the flow a little bit and she goes yeah and it's stuck so i'm just gonna deal with that so i'm she hulk now uh which is like yeah okay if you're gonna if you were gonna be somebody who constantly like pushed back on that always and couldn't accept something like a, a nickname that's that's an unlikable trait so like i feel like they're also making the character a little bit likable for us as an audience Jen gets home and she gets she parks her car and she gets out of her car and she gets attacked from behind. Uh, the guys that attack her have WC logos on and then looks like they're the wrecking crew, which was a super villain team from the comics. They were all over the comics as these lose like they would always lose to our heroes. Uh, but yeah. but they were in a lot of a lot of different stuff. And it looks like they're going for her blood. Uh, yeah. They they make an attempt to try to like extract blood from her arm. Now initially, they come at her from behind, and it just takes her a second to remember. Oh wait, I can Hulk up. Yeah, so, so, that was so a nice she, moment. She hulks up and she just tosses a few guys off of her. And uh, these guys have these magic, like all of their weapons are magic. She asks, yeah. "Did you rob an Asgardian construction worker?" And the one guy yeah. says, "Yeah." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and Jen easily does away with all four of them. Um, yeah. They kind of remind me of the tracksuit guys from mm-hmm. uh, from Hawkeye. Uh, yeah, but they same did level try to threat. Yeah, yeah, they did try to stab her arm and get the blood, but uh, mm-hmm. to no avail. And then we actually see them recu- uh, like recouping in their van. The villains. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like, okay, bad idea. Okay, fellas, <laughs> I admit that did not go exactly how I had imagined it. <laughs> but they do say the name Thunderball. That gets uh, so we knew, we know that that someone's called Thunderball, and this was actually someone that was a, a bigger had a bigger role in comics. Also, uh, mm-hmm. once she turned into She Hulk, I couldn't pierce that nasty green skin. Damn mm-hmm. it, boss is going to be mad. So a couple important things there. Um, I mean, the name Thunderball, mm-hmm. and then the fact that they did want to get the blood for a boss. So we wonder mm-hmm. uh, who is the boss. You know, that Tony yeah. Danza? <laughs> Who's the boss? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can't help but think, and n- totally shot in the dark. I mean, we don't, we haven't even know, we're in LA. I'm, 
But when you when they say boss Kingpin. now, I'm thinking of Kingpin. You know, yeah. especially yeah. when you think of Daredevil may have some sort of involvement. You know, Daredevil is going to be in this series, and you think of the lawyers and the court cases. So you wonder, you know, mm-hmm. who is the boss? The power broker was someone that you know we could be. Maybe it's someone like a, a right. Val. Who knows? Even right. like who's trying to get maybe a team together of uh, of Thunderbolt. So I'm right. I am very intrigued now in the boss character. Who is this boss character? Who are they working for? So I guess a little a little more on the flip side of what I was saying earlier. I am mm-hmm. like that is the cliffhanger that has me the most intrigued for this next episode. Okay, yeah. who's the boss? Who are they working for? Who is yeah. who is the person that is trying to make things difficult for She-Hulk and maybe what will be her ultimate uh the like some of the main issues that she's going to have to deal with because still mm-hmm. through three episodes she hasn't had a whole lot of turmoil mm-hmm. right i mean she's a superhero yeah. but even at the end she gets attacked and then in 30 seconds she takes care of all, of all these guys yeah yeah she hasn't faced any adversity that has gone beyond the scope of like the length of an episode yet you know mm-hmm. and this is like i said before i think it's going to be an episodic uh series where it is going to be kind of self-contained but i do believe they're also you know, laying groundwork for a more serialized thing. That's what the MCU is. It's a giant serialized uh, story that, you know, spans across, you know, multiple mediums here. Um, But I also noticed, um, aside from the boss, uh, which is definitely going to be important and come, uh, and that they're going to build upon that and it's going to come back. Uh, But just before that, with the inhibitor and the introduction of that, I think that's also going to be a huge uh, story point, maybe not just for this series, but beyond. And I think it has ramifications that extend into mutants and X-Men, uh, Sentinels and things of that nature, the, the uh, Days of Future Past storylines, the collars that the mutants would wear, very similar technology to like what we're seeing with the inhibitors. I think the precedent being set that the government is mandating, you know, a superpower an individual to have the inhibitor, that's like the, you know, the crack in the in the wall that's the uh slippery slope kind of the beginning of that um where you, you might see a large crackdown from the government or governments uh against mutants or you know powered individuals we're seeing uh the shapeshifter kind of raising havoc uh we're seeing you know uh, the the um people on the parole board witness firsthand you know blonsky change into this monster and that's making it front and center, this, this, these threats that are out there and the public consciousness. We've had the Eternals thing, you know, why is there a giant, you know, statue sticking out of the ocean? We've got all these alien attacks now. I mean, this, the, the blip, the, the, the stage is now set for, you know, some pushback. I think there would be a public outcry to maybe clamp down on, you know, all these, you know, supernatural threats, for lack of a better word, you know, these things that are abnormal, uh, that they're, that we're not used to, that's going to strike a lot of fear into people. So I think that they could really get a lot of juice out of uh, you know exploring you know that dynamic further in, in the MCU. And we haven't even really introduced mutants yet. You know, besides barely a little bit at the end of um, at the end of Ms. Marvel, but we know it's coming, and we know how much rich stories are are you know contained within the the mutants and the X-Men storylines from the comics. So there's so much that they're going to have to do 
uh, in the MCU and we'll, we're going to get to explore uh, within the MCU there. So I think that that's building uh, towards that story as well. We uh, finish up and we again get the credits that are the courtroom sketches that are colorful, that are a lot of fun, that look sort of like comics in the courtroom sketch yeah. style. Great and song. Get- oh my God, what a song here too. I, I don't, I, I have to look up this song. I, forgive it's me. New, I it's, um, it- it's newish. Uh, it's yeah. like, I, th- and I think it's sort of, it's a song that hasn't, that was like I think either created for this or that hadn't been done for a whole lot. But yeah, the music. I thought it was sick. Really, yeah. really well done. And then we get the mid credit scene. Jen signs a new client, Megan the Stallion. Um, we just see Megan signing the paperwork. And um, her boss, Mr. Holloway, walks in. It looks like he's going to go <clears throat> ask Jen something. Yeah. But as he walks over, he sees them twerking. Yeah. They're bent over and they're just going at it and uh they're having fun in her office and Megan says, "Oh, you are way more fun than my last lawyer." And Jen says, "I will kill for you, Megan the Stallion." <laughs> dial it and back. She, and she says, "Dial it back. Dial it back." <laughs> it actually reminded me of the um of the the Saturday Night Live with Chris Farley where they all dress up like right. the, the women and they're eating and David's like, like I'm exact, God, God, <laughs> Becky, you have another fry over there. Why don't you, you know, and lay off me. I'm hungry. Yeah. That was one of the yeah. all time great ones, man. So, so good. Uh, yeah. I think not perfect, but, mm-hmm. um, for plenty of critiques that we have, the, what's nice about it is that like, the pacing and the easy watch, the breeziness of it, like it's never gonna feel too weighty. Like I, I don't think mm-hmm. like even my complaints are always gonna be maybe like small and critical. I just don't feel like I'm ever gonna have like massive complaints about this because it, at the end of the day, it's like quick little thirty minute stuff. It doesn't seem like it's trying to rewrite the atom. It's taking a different mm-hmm. approach. Like these are things that I want a more like. Marvel, if they if they're going to be this entity, they're gonna have to have different styles of TV shows and movies and oh, content yeah. and things that are longer and shorter and things that are like self-contained or that lead to mm-hmm. others. So they're gonna be able to take like they're gonna try things that don't always work. I do mm-hmm. for the most part, I like a lot of the approach that they're going with here. My only yeah. one of my critiques is sort of like with yours, is that if you're going to go for the fun and the silly. Then like really lean into it. Don't play it safe, silly. Yeah. You know, because then it's not yeah. like just just go wild for the next few. Jen is funny. She gets drunk. She parties now. We know. You know what I mean? Like she can yeah. be a pretty crazy character. Like maybe they can lean into that a little bit more now. Absolutely. And um, to be honest, I don't see them letting loose too much. I mean, this I know, is Disney. I know. This is. Playing it safe is kind of the way that they do it with these sort of things. And that's, that's, that's to their detriment. I I think, you know, occasionally they take some big swings and that's when I think we really get some, some enjoyable, worthwhile products out of this. Um, But again, it's, it's a product. Uh, So that's, that's kind of the thing that's kind of weighing it down. I do think that there is a chance and there's uh, the ability that the creators here uh, within this construct that they, they have the, the opportunity to uh, to push the envelope a little bit, uh, but I'm not going to hold my breath and, and uh, expect them to. I, I do That's, think that there's a lot of room though for them to kind of rise to meet the occasion. I agree with that. I'm not, I don't want to put my expectations on it, but maybe we can, we can hope that 
they can meet somewhere in the middle a little bit more. Yeah, of, yeah. of where we are now. That's a good way yeah. of putting it. Yeah, there's always going to be compromises. So meeting in the middle is is kind of a um, it, it's a given with with a show like this, a big you know corporate show. This has to this has to please a lot of people. It's got to be acceptable for kids. Uh, at least that's how they framed it at at this point. That's what this isn't the Deadpool show or the no. any Deadpool movies. Um, I, and I still think that they are going to explore that. It's, that's to to be seen, though. Like what that's going to look like, we still haven't seen. That, it that, that's going to be the real test case, right? Yeah, I, like, I agree. Uh, like Deadpool, because we know how graphic and like lewd and how raunchy that mm-hmm. that story and those movies are. And if they tone Deadpool way down, then we'll know. Like, okay, we should we yeah. can't ever really expect anything like that. If they let Deadpool be 75% of Deadpool, you know, then maybe we can we can think that maybe we can get there, <laughs> yeah. you know, at some point. But it's I funny. think that's, that's kind of that's where I'm expecting it, honestly. Like right? it's, it's 75% is kind of the hope best we can hope for, I think, yeah, with, with the too. Disney mer- merger. Me uh, and I, I think they could still do like because honestly, I don't necessarily like the the really really over the top uh raunchy stuff in deadpool isn't like what sold me on it you know um that that's some stuff that just made me raise an eyebrow and go oh my god they're they're doing that here like that's that's kind of cool like it it definitely gave me um reason to give it the whole thing a second look just because they were making such bold choices with the content and and you know pushing those uh boundaries but uh uh, is that a make or break element of it? Not necessarily. I think it has to push boundaries, uh, but it doesn't necessarily need to go in all the directions that it went uh, in those first two Deadpool movies. Three episodes down, mm-hmm. uh, six more to go on this nine episode series arc that we have. And I love like yeah. it, it really didn't feel like it. And I love looking at it again. The ep- this episode this week was 32 minutes and we talked for an hour and 30 minutes about yeah. a 32 minute <laughs> piece of content. So, damn, if there are like people out there that need help fill in time, Tim Kelly and I mm-hmm. got you. We got you. <laughs> yeah. We can talk about a 30 minute piece of content and we can go hours on that thing. Um, as each as each week we have more overall content to talk about as these episodes build. We'll be back here with you all talking episode four next week. Tim, how about this? Um, I was thinking about it. In three mm-hmm. weeks from now, there are going to be at the same time House of the Dragon, Lord of the Rings, this show, and Andor all going at the same oh, time. Wow. All like all of these worlds, the Marvel world, the Star Wars world, Lord yeah. of the Rings, and Game of Thrones are all going to have current shows, new content weekly that are being released at the end of this Man. month. New it's rock just, stars aren't going to be sleeping. You know, I was all, say, that whole, those YouTubers. all those YouTubers, like oh. they're done. They have to hire new people. Like they're, they're, they're I guess they're in a good position in, in a way, but they're going to yeah. be overworked. <laughs> Lots of clicks coming for everyone. Just yeah. so much content. So for all of you out there, if you're a nerd, if you're someone who got made fun of for years for watching this stuff and reading it, don't you worry. Now is your time. Now is our yeah. time. We are here. We are taking over fandom. Indeed. It's going to be oh, yeah. a big month of September, and we'll be here with you talking each and every episode of She-Hulk with Tim Kelly. Thank you so much, my friend. You have a great rest of your weekend. I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you. I look forward to it as well. Take care. Thanks. Make sure to give Tim a follow at Tim is not funny on Twitter and on Instagram. You can check out everything he's got going there and stay tuned folks. Cause we have a lot more on this episode. We'll have episode four for you next week on the deep dive of she Hulk. 
Don't forget about one of the longtime sponsors of That's What G Said podcast, full-service realtor Cindy Carava. Her website, C-I-N-D-Y-C-A-R-A-V-A.com. She can help you out with buying, with selling, with leasing, anything you need in the world of real estate. Contact Cindy Carava. We move on to the old wrestling rewatch. A really fun SummerSlam 2002. Brock Lesnar gets crowned as the new champ. Shawn Michaels makes his return. We have a really fun Kurt Angle, Rey Mysterio Jr. opener. 2002 SummerSlam. Andrew Champagne joins for the old wrestling rewatch. Oh, yeah. Old wrestling rewatch. With Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali. <laughs> the old wrestling rewatch is back with Andrew Champagne this week and a really fun show. It's it's summer. SummerSlam was a little early this year on the WWE calendar. They've changed things up a bit, but SummerSlam usually was an August pay-per-view, and we are gonna head back to SummerSlam 2002 to talk about a pay-per-view that went on August the 25th, 2002 Andrew, this is a fun show I think I, I texted you the, the really cool tidbit That I found out in researching this show There are seven singles matches On the main body of the show And one tag match And in all of those wrestlers combined There are 18 wrestlers 15 of them At one time in their WWE career Were a, was, were a world champion It's insane The star power on this show is off the charts Everybody seems to have something to do It seems like they're really playing To everybody's strengths on this show too You mentioned the number of matches there I would say My astute opinion here Five of them are three and a half stars or higher We'll talk about four of them If you want to watch the Benoit Rob Van Dam match You guys can do that on your own Yeah, we we're won't, not going to talk about, about that too, yeah. too much. But It's a good get, match though Yeah Yes, you get HBK's first match in four years, and it doesn't like look like he's lost a step. No. You get The Rock making Brock Lesnar a superstar and putting him over clean as a sheet. You get a fantastic opener with Kurt Angle and Rey Mysterio. You get Edge against Eddie Guerrero in a match that could have gone on another 10 minutes with no problem. And there was nothing else on this show that really offended me. It's no. a really fun show, and it's less than three hours. It's like 2.45. It's a very easy watch, and if you were a fan around this time, you're going to find something that you really, really enjoy. Yeah, top to bottom, uh, not a whole lot of complaints. A few here and there. We'll pick at, uh, pick at them as we get throughout the show. We'll dive on in to SummerSlam 2002. So this was actually the first... Um, SummerSlam after the name change So now we're WWE not WWE They got the F out <laughs> They they did get the F out And as... if you look really close You can see a couple of members of the crew With the get the F out shirts The only wrestlers on this card That weren't world champions at one time Lance Storm, Goldust, and Test And Goldust was a fantastic wrestler They were all mid-card champions themselves Test was someone they were extremely high on Multiple times and always sort of wanted to be A main, main player He just Honestly, he just didn't have it He well, didn't have the thing with Test And we'll talk a little bit more about this Every time I look at him In one of these old rewatches You think, here's a guy That should have been somebody And they were eyeing him for a big push Remember when they brought Stephanie mm -hmm. McMahon in as daddy's little girl and all this other stuff, 
the angle wasn't her getting with Triple H. It was her getting with Test. Yep. And then Triple H getting with her. Test, mm-hmm. uh, a real tragic story, died way too young. Say no to steroids and drugs, kids. Just trust us on this. Uh, but there were things that he did that were fun. Lance Storm was a heck of a technician. And you mentioned how he was not a world champion. He could have been one in ECW Absolutely. and later day WCW Absolutely. with how over he got for a very brief amount of time. And no, Goldust was never a world champion, but oh darn, what a pity. All he's had is a 30 year career where he's mm-hmm. now one of the most respected guys in the business. I think he's going to sleep just fine. Good star power, star quality on this show. And we get into SummerSlam 2002. So we're in uh, Long Island, New York, Nassau Coliseum. The most wonderful place on earth, according to one Maxwell Jacob Friedman. Now, now what's weird here, and I, I wonder if this was edited or cut or something, but we didn't get any video package, did we? You it know, just start- the first part of it was edited. And then right after the main event, they cut it really, really fast. There had to have been some edits. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if a certain someone and Benoit was a gigantic part of the opener and they just decided to cut the video. Yeah. So we didn't really get the package that we normally would. And we did get the big pyro though. And then Kurt Angle out. The the one thing that you mentioned too, Andrew, the pace of the show is really quick. It's nice. It's not as if they have a whole, you know, double digit matches to get through but everything there's just not a lot of sense of wasted. urgency yeah exactly that's what they used to uh tell us at islands when i was waiting there i used to repeat that to my <laughs> kids i used to repeat that to my kids when i was a soccer coach i would tell them in practice sometimes come on urgency the sense of urgency so i always love that phrase uh, you're right it's exactly what it was they're just not dead moments not dead time not a bunch of wasted stuff there was one thing in the ring that we'll talk about but um we kick things off with this match. So it's Kurt Angle versus Rey Mysterio. Mysterio had not been in WWE for long at this point. And so for him as a smaller guy, I think there was always going to be the worry, the wonder, how will they treat him in WWE? What will he be given? And for a while with Rey, he really was, he was, in matches, he was on shows a lot, but he didn't get a whole lot of big wins. He didn't beat a whole lot of the bigger guys until he got the big run. And then afterwards, his career maybe changed a little bit based on how he was booked. But for the most part here, you were going to get a lot of feisty underdog stuff. I think this was the match that really established him, though, Andrew, for the WWE fans that maybe hadn't seen him as much in WCW or maybe you know weren't sure what he could do with some of the the WWE main event guys, this match was incredible. Every single thing was done with purpose, with intensity, even with the urgency. Pins. God, that's going to be a drinking game. That's a, urgency, every time urgency. it is. And like even the pins, they were aggressive. The way that they he would cut, they would cover and back and forth. And angle was just, it was, it was so so good from the very beginning. Surprise from behind with Mysterio. Yeah, um, the two things with this match that I'll bring up, and we'll go move by move, and, you know, this mm-hmm. is going to be tough for you because they went 10 minutes without taking a breather. I know, yeah. So if anyone has ever taken Kurt Angle's suplexes better than Mysterio, I don't know who it is because every time Mysterio lands, it's like a thwack or a thud. It sounds like it hurts. And to Kurt Angle's credit, 
he doesn't make Mysterio slow down. He works to Mysterio's tempo, which is not easy for luchadors to do, let alone guys that don't have the luchador experience of going 100 miles an hour all this time. Remember, Angle's only been working a couple of years, and he'd been mostly working with bigger guys. Yeah. The, the fact that this match wasn't a gigantic clash in styles is a credit to both guys. I've got it at three and a half. If you want to go a little bit more than that on the star scale, I'm not going to begrudge you too much. My only criticism is they could have gone on way longer. Yeah, it was only 920, I think, when it was all said and done. And he comes flying right right off the bat from behind. Head scissors, drop kick, big monkey flip. So Kurt's a little off balance. And then he starts working on the ankle. And this crowd is going crazy with angle sucks chance throughout this whole match. They're really loving Ray, who's flying around. Looks like he's going to get the 619 right away. But then Kurt moves, and he grabs Ray's legs, and he pulls him out of the ring. Then he starts hitting suplexes. Ray, uh, he actually catches Ray, hits a nice German. Um, Mysterio rolls him up, but just two. Lots of fun little near falls, too. A big backbreaker. Then just huge angle sucks. And Kurt is down in, he, he's, he's down on his knee, and he's just locking in this pressure um, on the back of Mysterio, which was really, really awesome. And he's doing it with a single crab. It's just awesome um, Ray goes for a head scissors But he keeps trying to maneuver But it, it it looks like Kurt has him pretty well scouted early A lot of the things that he's trying to do Kurt's kind of able to Defend or block And so it's it's building up a little bit To where um, you'll, Mysterio Will finally start to hit those moves You get a jawbreaker He goes for a sunset flip but that one doesn't hit Then uh, he Angle gets a belly to belly overhead He goes for an angle slam uh, but Ray hits an arm drag And then he sends Kurt flying Into the outside I mean the pace is just Wild here so When Kurt's outside Ray wants to do a, a Suicide dive but Referee Jimmy Corderas shout out to Jimmy who does the wrestling Inc podcast On uh, a couple nights a week he's a really Good job he's fun because he always will have insight And he'll always you know That when Jimmy's talking about one of the shows He's always going to point out some of the referee stuff when everyone's talking about anything else, he's like, "Did you guys see the ref in that match?" And everyone's like, "No, I didn't know." You know, but so it's really funny. But uh, so Jimmy is is in the spot. They work him in here to uh to have a really cool spot. So he goes to sort of stop Ray from doing the suicide dive, so he can check on Kurt. And Ray turns around and then leaps right over Jimmy, which was just badass here. And the crowd's going crazy with holy shit chance. And now Ray's flying all around springboard drop kick. Uh, Kurt catches him though and puts on uh, an ankle lock. Uh, but Ray kicks him off. Then he hits a 619 and he hits the springboard for two. Um, really, really cool stuff. He hit the Hurricane Rana um, on that one too, which made it even better. Big spinning heel kick. Then he goes up top, but Kurt hits a big drop kick. Um, and that Ray sets him up to try to go for a Hurricane Rana. Kurt slips out, and then he locks on the ankle lock, and Ray has to tap out at I think nine twenty two. So, whew, this was a blast, Andrew. Never a dull moment, and I agree. I think three, like where you were, three and a half ish is kind of like a floor. If you want to go up to like in the four range, I'm fine with it. The reason why you just can't maybe take it to that next level is because it's only nine minutes or so. 
you know, there's there's one other reason. And it became more apparent the more you were talking about the match and the more I was replaying it in my head. And that is this was very, very similar, frighteningly similar to a lot of the matches Mysterio had with Dean Malenko in WCW. And I just like those matches just a little bit better because Malenko was a little bit smaller and some of his stuff, it seemed a little bit more natural and free flowing, but this was really, really good. Kurt Angle recently went on social media and called this one of his favorite matches. It was a lot of fun, really good opener. They certainly picked the right match to kick the show off. Uh, The only criticism that you have here from a booking standpoint is this was a time where WWE wasn't doing an overwhelming amount with either of these guys for reasons passing understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of like a thrown that that's you're right. There's not a whole lot of build and story. It's just kind of like a thrown together, hey, these two guys don't have anything. And there are worse two guys to throw together for that oh, reason, sure. just to say, hey, we don't need a rationale for this. Let's throw these two guys out there for 10 minutes and tell them to go hundred miles an hour. Boom. And you, there you and go. You, you could tell they both had a, a little bit of a bounce in their step, I think, too, to say, let's go out there and open this thing up, you know, and try to steal the show. Kurt, I was really proving that he could fly, too, because for him, he was always in such fantastic shape. It's like, oh, OK, I'm just going to go hard for 10 minutes. Cool. I'll do that. You know, I'm used to 20 minute matches where I got to go a little bit longer or things like that. So let's do that. Fun, fun opener here to get things started. So afterwards. We head to Stephanie McMahon So Stephanie right now 26 years old When she was on this show and So she's, can I can I lead into this really quickly please, With the game show voice sort of thing Please. It's now time for every Smart wrestling fan's least favorite Show brand Supremacy bullshit I know god it's so bad Who cares about the blue and the red Stuff it's just and look Stephanie salvages this somewhat With something we'll get to but There's just Honestly of all of The things that get me excited About WWE with Vince McMahon not in the picture Can we finally be done with the idea of brand supremacy? Please, 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 please. Please. Well, you know what? When we are talking, we're recording this on August the 30th. So if you think about this year right now, where we are on the calendar, we're a few days out from the clash at the castle pay-per-view. But the current world champion championship is held by Roman Reigns. Just one tight, one champion has both. The same thing with the tag. So because they don't have separate champions for those titles, I wonder if this is the year where we may not have that, where we maybe have just some more traditional Survivor Series matches. Maybe they find a way to I've always wanted to find a way to have the Survivor Series be able to lead to something to do with the Royal Rumble. I I, I, right. I try to play it out in my head. Right. You feel like at least with some of those survivors, then then they give those matches a little meaning, you know, some, yeah. like something there or or give the winners of them like a world title shot at the the title you know like if if, if we have a a one survivors match that's sort of like your top tier guys and then the middle one that's sort of the IC guys you know the survivors on the team get a title something right tell you what i would do in a perfect world we're moving the elimination chamber to december you survive in the main event survivor series match you get spots Boom. in the chamber there you go perfect you get a spot Done. automatic. How do auto- I not have a territory, well, Gino? No, and it's perfect because it's it's the timing. <laughs> See, because the the rumble is a little far, but you know we you know what I mean. You you want it to make it something because it was fun 
Back in the late 80s and early 90s When we didn't see these guys a whole lot And there was only a few pay-per-views And then we got these fun combinations But even after we started getting them on Saturday Night Main Event And you know more weekly TV Raw and stuff It just it doesn't seem as important So give well, it some the meaning other, The other thing too And this is my thing You can have Team Raw against Team SmackDown And still have it be wildly entertaining But have it be the individuals against each other Rather than the shows versus each other Especially when six months down the line Half the guys are going to be wearing different shirts It's yep. not complicated Yes, just and and it's so much better just to run run with storylines that are going on with them than the blue versus red story of it. Who cares? Exactly. Who cares? So we move to uh, so Stephanie was backstage, and then she runs into Eric Bischoff. Bischoff's in her office. They said there was the only one office there, so they're going to share that office and watch the show in there together. So this is right after we had the brand split. GM for Raw, GM for SmackDown back there. Um, we get to JR and Jerry the King. So they're sitting in a different spot now because they're the Raw commentary team. <laughs> right off the bat, Lawler says, We welcome you to the Raw portion of SmackDown. And, J- and JR says, uh, It's SummerSlam. You know, as bad as that is, and it was bad. I mean, Jeremy Piven calling it Summerfest is never going to be topped. No. Uh, he did Jerry Lawler a favor there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, first up, Chris Jericho comes out. It's going to be Chris Jericho versus Ric Flair. Ric we- Flair can- destroying Fozzie's set will never, ever, ever not be funny. And that needs to happen to end every single Fozzie show from now until the end of either the band or Ric Flair's existence. Two gentlemen... Who, if we would have told you in 2000, 2002, that 20 years later, in the very same month, they both had wrestling matches. <laughs> Chris Jericho has them all the time. Do and Rick- we want to look, and I'm, I don't want to dwell too much on this because it was really sad. Do we want to call what Ric Flair did wrestling? No. And I, and it just don't get out there again, ever. And you started hearing him talk about how he... he he like wanted to be at a certain exact weight so he wasn't drinking water. It's like, what are you doing? Like, who cares if you're at one pound over or this or that? If you're gonna go in to do this match and all of the pomp and circumstance around it, I thought was was pretty fun. Everything up until Ric Flair got the bell rang for his match was actually fun. A lot of the undercard stuff was cool and uh, some good matches there. And even and don't this- get this twisted, by the way. I have a metric ton of respect for Flair. Even at that age, wanting to do something and go out on his own terms, I respect that. But there comes a time where it just becomes apparent to everybody that it's not it, necessary. It's not something you're. It's not necessary, and it's not something you're capable of doing anymore. And then you start hearing things after that show, and Flair's talking about. I, I wish they hadn't branded it my last match. Like, my on. God, man, stop. You've done enough Like this is our version of trying to tell Mick Foley After he took the two falls from Hell in the Cell Listen, maybe you don't have to go out there for the main event To do your run-in spot You don't have to do that Just, you know, stay in the back, be yourself, whatever Be Ric Flair, da-da-da-da-da Now one thing I will say There was talk 20 years ago That Ric Flair was done He He had this match with Jericho 
He also had one of my all-time favorite Raw matches. And Gino, I almost picked this episode of Raw for We got to do one uh, an episode well, of Raw sometime. We haven't ever done one, one, yeah. The one that I almost picked is the match that he had with Steve Austin where neither guy could throw a punch. They went 15 minutes neither guy throwing a punch. Tell me two guys in the business right now that could do that. Danielson could and two guys who threw a lot of punches. Yes, too, you know, like flip. Think about people that could work around that stipulation and not lose anything. Danielson could, Claudio could, probably Omega. You know, maybe, like guys like maybe, that. Maybe. You know, and but the the list is five it's or less. Short, right? Short list. Uh, very few. But what's funny about this? So at the time of this match, Flair was fifty-two. Jericho right now is 51. He's going to be 52 in November. <laughs> so that, it's pretty funny to think about that Chris Jericho right now is what Flair was sort of in here. But I will say, Flair looks in really good shape here. And oh, he's yeah, still he does. moving really quick. And he's very deliberate with his motions and his movement. And as you mentioned, the uh, the fun little video package to show the buildup for this with Flair destroying the Fozzie set. And um, Jericho uh, Jericho has the advantage early on. And I thought this was a, you know, this thing went a, like a minute longer than the opening match. It went 10, 20, but it was a pretty good pace throughout for these two guys too. Like they're, they didn't really slow it down all that much throughout. Uh, back body drop early, belly to belly. Uh, went for the elbow drop, but then Flair starts hitting some chops, crowds with the woo for the chops and punches. Um, and then JR tells us that, uh, yeah, when when Flair debuted, Jericho was two, which I thought was <laughs> cool. cool. Um, Flair uh, uh, gets clotheslined. He went for the bump over the top, but Jericho kind of had to sort of help him get over the top. And then Jericho works on Flair in the outside. He jumps off the top, punch to the back. Jericho going punches. I mean, a lot of this is basic stuff. Big back elbow. I love when Jericho did that back elbow. Um, and then the uh, big drop kick. Um, Jericho went to uh, expose the turnbuckle, and and then he was using his um, his tape to choke Flair. Big suplex by Jericho. He goes up top, but then Flair comes back with chops, and he actually. He hit the spot on Jericho on the top rope that everybody hits on him, which I'm sure Jericho loved doing this. The where everybody catches Flair when he goes up top and then slams him. <laughs> so it was just cool to see this reverse, and that that made me just laugh when I uh, when I watched this. And you get a clothesline bulldog. Actually, uh, Jericho goes for the walls at one point, and Flair with an inside cradle. And uh, there was a kind of weird bulldog spot that looked a little bit off here. Jericho goes for uh, a lion salt, but then Flair moves some chops and then Flair goes for the walls of Jericho. But uh, Jericho ends up locking in a figure four. And so they're going back and forth in here with some fun spots. Um, Flair gets to the ropes and then Jericho grabs the ref and he pushes referee Charles Robinson. And Little H. Little woo, little Nate. That's a great point. So he goes for uh, Flair's back, but Flair moves, and uh, Jericho ends up running into the ropes. He we get a hard ref bump here, and he's kind of holding his eye. <laughs> Flair with a big low blow, and then he locks in the figure four, which in his later career 
you didn't see him win with the figure four quite as much. You know, like it wasn't always that that would win things. Sometimes it'd be weird things here and there, but Jericho uh, taps and Flair picks up the win at a, a little over 10 minutes here. What'd you think about this one? I had this at two and three quarters. It wasn't bad. It was fun. It just never really got out of second gear. Not like it needed to. This wasn't meant to be the sort of 100 miles an hour thing we saw in the opener. It was a much more deliberate sort of thing. couple of really cool spots. You hit on a bunch of them. Uh, the one that I want to talk about a little bit, and it's interesting the ways in which the business changes. So Jericho gets the figure four, right? Flair gets to the ropes and almost immediately after taps out. Mm-hmm. Sounds sort of similar to what people are crucifying the Liv Morgan book. You're right. For, that huh? was a that was almost the same spot. You're right. It, it is. It's frighteningly similar. Now, yeah. there were there were certain differences and whatnot, and I understand the logic behind that because you have Ric Flair who's bulletproof at this point. Liv Morgan is not. But it's interesting to see the differences in how these spots are portrayed. Between reaction. People of different statures on the card. What the reaction is. And, and how things are booked moving forward based off of that. This match, though, it was fun. And you got to see Jericho throwing a temper tantrum afterwards. And temper tantrum Jericho is always my good. favorite Jericho because yeah. he knows it, too. He absolutely he, knows that when he's a heel, he has a real punchable face and he plays into it and he leans into it. Squins, this was gets- fun. Oh, it's, it's not like it was an it's not like it was an all time great match or anything, but. Jericho would wind up getting the reputation as the guy the legends loved working with because the matches would be good. He would do all of this stuff that played directly to their strengths. Jericho prides himself on being the opponent for some of Hulk Hogan's last memorable matches in WWE not long after this. And of course, he would have that outstanding series with Ricky Steamboat several years later during his second run. This was good stuff. If you haven't seen it before, you absolutely should. And seeing this made me wonder going back about six weeks when Jericho and Flair had their social media tiff, whether or not that was supposed to be teasing something for for down the line, or if it's a case where like there was one thing Flair said that honestly, I was wondering why he would say it. He called Chris Jericho a Shawn Michaels ripoff. First of all, if you're going to rip off anybody, why wouldn't you rip off Shawn Michaels? Well, and and and, and to be honest, if you were going to call Jericho that, he's done about as close of a job as you could do. If if you thought Shawn Michaels was on a stature above him, that's like the the Michael Jordan Kobe Bryant thing, right? Is he exactly? That that's a good? very good comparison. No, yeah. but he's damn. He's like he's been as close of a mimic as you possibly could be, right? Yep, and and also by the way, if if we're talking about ripoffs, um, call me crazy here, Gino. Didn't somebody else have that Nature Boy nickname mm-hmm. before Flair had it? Yes, yes. Just saying. Yep. Just saying. Everything is a version of something else and someone else, you know. So, yeah, this was fun. This was fun. Like it wasn't five star, but it was good. It was solid. It was a it was a good pay per view match. And fun stuff from these guys Some cool spots throughout We go back in the locker room with Paul Heyman And Brock Lesnar So I mean Nothing too crazy here Paul uh, says that 
Brock is going to bring everything, but Brock's going to take him out and become the undisputed heavyweight champion. Brock is the next big thing. And tonight, the next big thing will arrive. Fun. And Brock doesn't say anything. He's just bouncing. He's just bobbing up and down, <laughs> which is that's what you want, right? Heyman's the money, money guy on the mic. Exactly. It's just looking back, it's a little bit weird that Brock Lesnar got pushed to the moon. And literally, he got the super duper star push without saying anything. Has anybody else in WWE history gotten that kind of push? I mean, Goldberg did get that push in WCW, but that's a markedly different company that was doing things in a totally different way. With WWE going back to WWF, no champ couldn't talk. And it's one of those things where you're going, wow. He must have really been a freak in order to have received this kind of push. And then you see him work after having entered the business about five minutes before and go, yep, there was money in this guy. Mm -hmm. I get it. I understand. Yep. Uh, So up next, Eddie Guerrero versus Edge. And when when they uh, remember before this match starts, there's a couple signs. One of them says deport Eddie. And then another one says Dirtiest mullet in the game That one made me chuckle So uh, really quick I'm just And I I almost said this when we were talking about the opener Because there were signs everywhere Everywhere There were signs at the arena There were signs at their nightclub in Times Square in New York City Signs literally everywhere Hunter, bring that atmosphere back mm -hmm. Please I agree (laughs) It's, It's fun It is and um, this match was was another very solid match. A uh, little back and forth, um, flapjack from Edge, and then Eddie with a, a neck breaker where he he put Edge's neck into the ropes. Monkey flip, front slam by Edge, and then um, Eddie moves and Edge goes over the top rope to the floor. And then Eddie's working on Edge's shoulder, throwing him into the steel steps uh, outside. And then arm bar inside looked really good. He hits like a, a, a what one of the recaps I was looking at called a single arm DDT, which it was it was cool. It was a little different. And then he's stomping on the arm. He's really working on that arm. So there's a story right off the bat. He's working on the arm. Um, keeps going for arm bars, big clothesline. Edge hits a, a nice power slam and then a back body drop. But. Eddie gets back in control with the big elbow. Now we get a little more back and forth face buster for Edge, and then he sends Eddie over the top. Um, he hits a big cross body to the floor, and then they're they're um, right in the corner, and Edge hits a, a suplex for two. Then Edge chart like oh, Edge starts sprinting in, but Eddie hits um, uh, Eddie hits a drop kick to the shoulder, which looked nasty. It was really cool, and then Eddie goes up top. For a frog splash but Edge gets the knees up And blocks and then he hits a uh, DDT the execution And I think Cole said that Nobody had kicked out of that before We never know when they say that but sometimes It's it's true and I they were booking Edge strong And some of his finishers strong Eddie ends up hitting the uh, northern lights Then a neck breaker and uh, A little more back and forth Eddie wits, hits a frog splash To the arm That was brutal he lays his ar- Edge's arm out And he just frog splashes him right on the shoulder And um, Edge actually Somehow kicked out um, Eddie was sort of 
surprised that Edge was able to kick out of that And we get another minute Just kind of back and forth um, Edge with the slam off the top Runs the ropes and hits the spear And uh, he wins at 11.50 So I guess my complaint would be You know, he's selling the shoulder But he did hit the spear But it wasn't like he hit the spear And then there was a bunch of stuff after He just hit the spear and did it And uh, shout out to Milo That's his favorite move now, the spear I've been spearing him a little bit So he loves to say, it's a it's a spear <laughs> So, uh, yeah he was He was excited to see the spear Milo's poor, poor, poor mother um, <laughs> So This match I had at three and a half stars Again, a lot of my problem is It could have gone on longer Eddie working the arm is such a great change of pace This was a guy that could go 100 miles an hour Or be the big brooding heel that makes everything hurt And makes you sit through and watch it uncomfortably Hoping the person you want to kick his ass Winds up doing the Hulk up sort of comeback This was a really cool match This is a really simple storyline too The storyline is Guerrero is jealous of Edge Five words That's it That's all you need Wrestling is at its best Gino When it's what? Simple Simple That's what this was It was so simple And so easy to follow And they tell the story Of Eddie working the arm And Edge selling the arm And I bought the spear a little bit As sort of an adrenaline rush sort of thing Because it's the last spot Exactly. I understand the the people that knocked it. And you were not alone, by the way, Gino. There were a couple of reviewers of that that, that knocked that match for that reason. Having said that, this is a three-and-a-half-star match where yep, you're getting Eddie Guerrero doing what he can to make Edge into an even bigger name moving forward. And Edge ultimately would become that guy, not until after a couple of stops and starts. Also, before we move on, well, I understand that the Metalingus theme that he has, the on this day, I see clearly da-da-da-da-da thing, that's a great song. This is underrated theme music. The Rob Zombie bad. thing he had at this Yeah, it's time, not bad. It's a really good tune. Uh, that's he's had a lot of good that, he's had a lot of good options throughout yeah, his just, career from it the brood. It gets lost. So and, yeah. and I wanted to make sure we, we paid proper proper respect to that. Now, if I may lead us in. To the WWE Please do. spot at the end of this. Yep. Gino, there's a line that I hate in here. There's a line that I have a pathological objection to. The line, and I'm quoting, contract disputes don't affect the outcome of our season. Backstory here. This was around the time Major League Baseball players were threatening to go on strike. There was a big legal dispute. And they came as close as they maybe have since the mid-1990s to going on strike. Big prolonged legal battle. I remember watching SportsCenter when they would rerun that every single morning in the Mm -hmm. summers. And what they would do is a lot, and I mean a lot, of the program would rerun, but they would leave space for live updates from the courthouse where people were negotiating. So I remembered this thing. I did not remember WWE milking that by saying things like contract disputes don't affect the outcome of our season. It took about a year and a half, but WWE paid for that because, gee, let's take this big, bald guy that we finally got to come over from WCW. 
Let's book him iffy for about six months to where he doesn't want to resign after WrestleMania. <laughs> and then let's take this other guy who we've invested most of the prior two years in and making look like a killer. And let's burn him out to where he doesn't want to resign. The result, Goldberg and Brock Lesnar in one of the worst WrestleMania matches in history. Just That's- saying, you see some of this stuff. And you understand why WWE did it in the moment, but you look at it through a critical lens and it just does not hold up. It's just not something like that's something you can say in an interview or like if someone asks you a question about what makes WWE different than all the other sports or something. Hey, look, you know, this, these are some of our positives. Uh, We don't have this or we don't have that. But when you push it like that, it's very just like it's a weird karma thing too. I don't know. It just, it does. It comes off like it's propaganda. It's snide. It just it doesn't do anything. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't do anything for you. So that was uh World Wrestling Entertainment. Our season never ends. <laughs> we we then got to the un Americans, Christian, Lance Storm, and Test. So they're backstage with uh, the coach. And I mean, this is just your typical, you know, anti-American established like anti-American group. They were in a tag team match against Booker T and Goldust for the tag team championship. So it was Christian and Lance Storm versus Booker T and Goldust. They have an upside down USA flag also. Um, I mean, this was a fine match, Andrew. It was, a, it was pretty basic tag stuff. And with these guys, the kind of things that you would you would have expected. Um, Goldust starts it out with Christian. Um, hits power slam. And uh, hip attack and then a power slam to Storm Storm tags in And uh, then Booker tags in He hits his sidewalk slam and then a knee drop Goldust comes back in And uh, Christian with a uh, a heel Cheap shot, thumb to the eye And then Storm tosses Goldie to the floor Then the heels take over Big USA chance um, We get a backbreaker on Goldust From Christian And then Storm comes back in Um Christian and Storm with some quick tags And they're they're, uh, they're Preventing the tag And keeping Goldust in, in the ring And working him over uh, Ref was distracted And it looked like he got the tag But Ref didn't see so Booker had to leave uh, Fans were into a lot of this stuff They were having a lot of fun with this They liked Booker T and Goldust Because they were a, a pretty fun and entertaining group And the anti-Americans are an easy heel team To boo and to get, to get your USA chance back in they went for a concerto of a gold dust move, uh, and, and they end up hitting each other, and everyone's down on the ground. Uh, Booker T finally gets the hot tag, and he goes house of fire all over the place. Big clotheslines, back body drop, chops, running forearm. Um, he hits a big drop kick off the top, and he hits a flapjack and a scissors kick, and then the spinneroni. Big, 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 big pop for the spinneroni. Uh, jumping sidekick. But the referee was down when Booker had the uh, had the advantage and would have been able to get the pin there. Storm comes in with the ring bell, uh, then Booker and uh, and Goldust take care of Storm. But Test comes down to the ring, and uh, the numbers game is just a little too much. He hits the big boot to Booker, and then Christian picks up the win. Nine thirty there, so Lance Storm and Christian get the win. It looked like the baby faces were about to pull it out, but Test coming down and getting involved. So, uh, Andrew, what'd you think of this tag? So I didn't like the un-Americans at the time and not in the boo, you're the heel kind of didn't like, it just seemed lazy. 
And the more that we have rewatched, do you know how many of these rewatches have we done there, thereabouts? You've got a more updated tally. Okay. The more we've done and the more that we've seen, I saw this and I went, gosh, five years earlier, there was this guy in pink and black that was doing this same promo a hundred times better. And that's not disrespect to Christian. It's not disrespect to Lance Storm or to test. It's just, it seemed like everything the un-Americans did were things that the Hart Foundation maybe could have done and they decided to like leave on the cutting room floor. Like there was one segment where Kane came back and they were teasing burning the American flag. Naturally, fire summons Kane. Kane comes out and beats the crap out of everybody. Would that have been a stretch if the Hart Foundation had done it? No. It's just, it seemed like they took all the ideas that the Hart Foundation decided, eh, we don't really want to do that. And they stuck them with the Un-Americans. Now, these guys were good workers. Christian and Lance Storm were about as good as it got. And Test was a, the heel heavy of the group that did a lot of the heavy lifting as far as the power spots. As a trio, it sort of worked. But I just, I was never a fan of them as a group. Me neither. As much as I was of them doing other things. As far as this match goes, it was just great to see Goldust back in a WWE ring after where he was a couple of years prior to this. Mm-hmm. If you look at 98, 99, Goldust is pushing 300 pounds. He looks miserable. He looks depressed. You can tell he's going through a lot of different things, and it's just not going well for him. He's back in shape here. His run with Booker T was just plain fun. They wound up winning the tag titles at Armageddon later that year. Big pop for that. The segments that Booker T and Goldust did, they were the quintessential wacky tag team partners who hate each other for a while until they gained mutual respect. And when they had to break up, it was a legit tearjerker sort of thing. When Booker T looks at Goldust and goes, you were the best tag team partner I ever had. It hits you. It hits you right in the feels. It shouldn't have worked. It worked. And it was fantastic. This match, though, it's a real simple formula. It's nine minutes. It's not overly long. Goldust is the face in peril, getting the crap kicked out of him. They tease the hot tag for what seems like 80% of the match. Booker comes in, gets a couple of his high spots. Then Test runs in, and the Un-Americans escape with the title. My note on this match was, this hit me as the TV match that leads to the pay-per-view, not mm-hmm. the match at the pay-per-view. Now, they had bigger plans for everybody involved in this, and it's not like it was the end of the world, but for what it was, it, it was just okay. It wasn't anything great. I've got it at two stars. You're not missing anything if you skip over the match. Yeah, it's fine. It, it's not bad, but it... And what I think what hurts it, too, is just on this particular show... The three matches that were right before it were all better than it, and they had more star power and a little more, you know, quality to it. And then the matches after it are all the same. This is probably one of the lesser matches on the show. And so, yeah, it just doesn't feel quite as important as some of the others here. Um, Let's continue along. And, yeah, (laughs) so we go to New York City, and we're at the uh, WWE restaurant. Times Square. Nidia is there and Jamie Noble. Jamie Noble, who is a executive, right? 
backstage. Yeah, he's doing a lot of agenting stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this gimmick I remember being pretty hilarious. Another it, one of those. It shouldn't have worked, but it worked. They it, were doing the trailer park trash kind of gimmick. It was uh, it, it, it was funny in spurts. It, it was so there was so she she has to pick one of these two guys to make out with, and so she picks this guy and she just jumps on him. And she is just French in this dude like crazy. And it it's funny just because the way that Noble like says it, you like that boy? He's like, you like that? You know, he's just it was just looking at that, you're like, wow. I mean, they definitely wouldn't do something like that um now nowadays. But uh Bischoff loved it and he said that she knows her place in the business, and Stephanie said that women are like herself. On top so Yeah the acting Between Stephanie McMahon and Eric Bischoff on this show It wasn't quite porn level But it wasn't far above it No it was yeah it was weird It was not good And we uh Yeah that That segment was just wow Um we moved to uh The next match now if those of you Uh may be listening to this for the first time we love to have a good time on this show. That's the reason why we started doing this thing a few years back. So we like to have fun. When there are Chris Benoit matches that we have to get involved in, it just puts us in a weird headspace. We always skip over them. We try not to pick shows where he has too big of a uh, a role on the show. So this next match, if you've seen it, it's the IC Championship match, Benoit versus Rob Van Dam. It's a good match. They go like 16 minutes plus. And uh, RVD gets the win He picks up a big win and he wins the IC title But we just prefer Not diving into those matches Because uh, we want to yeah. have fun here Yeah, now if, if you want a little bit more Explanation as, as to why Paul Heyman summed it up When he did a thing and somebody mentioned Benoit and he went On one of his 90 seconds Without taking a breath promo uh, spiels and he's exactly right I'm not going to go summarize his stuff Because I don't want us going down the rabbit hole But if you want the general basis For what I think of the whole situation And how I can't watch anything That, that he does anymore Look at that promo and just imagine It's my voice saying it Yep Let's uh, continue along So after the match We uh, again check in with Bischoff And, uh, and Stephanie And just quick Bischoff says uh, now the IC title is going to be on Raw They're talking about brand supremacy um, and, and it's pretty pretty basic stuff Nothing special there But we do get the build for our next match The Undertaker versus Test So we get a video package of the Un-Americans And Test coming out with the upside down American flag Then Undertaker, American badass On the motorcycle It's not as if this match is bad Right, if this is a vacuum, and if you're watching <clears throat> these two workers in the ring, and you knew nothing about either one of these two guys, if these two guys walk out, you've never seen either one of them, you don't know who they are, and they get in the ring and have the match, the match is fine, not offensive. I didn't have really any problem with it. The problem in a match like this is, it's just so predictable. I don't know if anybody thought there was a chance that Undertaker isn't winning this match, or if it wasn't just a a. A good way to get Undertaker on the card And you give him a win over someone who They've always had plans for As you mentioned, Test was supposed to be the guy For He was You can see why when you When you see his look, his size He moves well for a big guy Hey! He's a, everybody drink. But 
he just he was sort of missing that it factor, right? right? Just the the put it all together that you know he checked a lot of boxes that you would want to check, but he wasn't incredible on the mic either, and so he just he didn't really connect. He looked good in the ring, and he looked good walking to the ring, and he was fine in the ring. He just didn't ever do anything really remarkable. So you have these two big guys that go at it for about eight minutes in here. Um, and this was a good, like good effort from test. He, he worked hard and, um, he knocks Taker off the apron. He sends him out into the crowd. We have test, you know, working on the knee, tossing Taker into the ring steps, big elbows to the head. So he's, he's working on him uh, and has the advantage early arm bar, then undertaker with a belly to belly, uh, DDT, uh, Taker walks the ropes, um, and then uh, Taker tosses Test into the turnbuckle. He moves the big uh, out of the way from the big boot, um, but Taker stands uh, lands on his feet. Uh, Test goes for a big kick, but then he avoids it. So they're kind of going back and forth. He hits a big choke slam for two. Then Lance Storm and Christian come down to the ring. Taker takes care of both of them pretty easily, and then uh, choke slam for Lance, choke st- slam for Christian. Test gets the advantage so for a moment It looked like the same Exact thing that happened in the tag match was going to happen So I I did like that spot because We just saw this exact thing happen Earlier and they won When the numbers game was A little too much so it looked like Oh my gosh are they going to actually give him A win over taker so I will Say for you know not thinking It was going to happen at least They had set it up well with The spot earlier in the night now Following that uh, Taker ends up kicking a chair into Test. Test brings the chair in. Taker kicks it into him, and then he hits the pile driver, the tombstone for the win. Eight minutes in about twenty seconds or so. What'd you think about this one, Andrew? Not a ton. I mean, it was fine for what it was. I think you hit it as far as if it's in a vacuum. If you're seeing this match just on a random weekly wrestling show. You're not going to be offended. You're going to watch it. You're going to say, okay, this is fine, whatever. Uh, I did like Taker getting a running DDT. You didn't see that much from him in that particular spot. When Taker was in the early 2000s, he went through this weird phase, not necessarily character-wise, but work rate-wise, where a lot of his stuff just didn't land. And then once mixed martial arts took off, Taker saw that and went, I can do that. And it was like a switch flipped in the Mm -hmm. mid 2000s where all of a sudden this guy who had probably had two or three matches greater than three stars the prior three or four years was having four star matches once a month. Yep, That guy got it. Now, he evolved. He did. Yes. My criticism of this match, and I understand they're supposed to be the chicken shit heels. I understand that. Lance Storm and Christian are the tag champs. They run in and they get treated like jobbers. They do. I he don't disposes like disposes of them very like, easily. At the very least, give them a couple of shots before, you know, my goodness, if you're going to do something and you're going to rehash something, have them knock Taker down, do a cheesy celebration, then have Taker do the sit up and just beat the living daylights out of them. You could do that. That'd be fine. And no one would care. Nobody would say, oh, that's dead man taker, not biker taker. It's the undertaker. Nobody would care. I didn't like that. This match as it stood, it wasn't bad. I added it two stars. It's not like it was unwatchable. 
The other thing I do want to note, a lot was made about the un-Americans carrying the upside-down American flag and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. After the match, Taker goes into the crowd, gets an American flag, goes back into the ring, goes up on the turnbuckle, holds it up. It's not upside-down, but it's backwards. <laughs> it's just hilarious. It is. There's like a little that that's something that's uh, an AEW thing that would that would that would happen, right? That would that it's would entirely happen. Entirely possible. And look, yeah. it wasn't backwards to the Undertaker. He probably didn't know. He just wrestled ten minutes. He was probably blown up. And that's if you great. look at it from Taker's standpoint, that's it looks great. fine. But he's showing the crowd, and it's backwards. And <laughs> I I understand how it happened. Because if I'm holding up an American flag and it looks fine to me, it's going to look backwards to anybody on the other side. But it's just one of those things that you look and it's just like, oh, God, we have just spent the last hour talking about how an American flag upside down represents distress and all this other stuff. What does a backward one mean? I need to go to <laughs> flagdictionaries.com. I was going to say what, what that means. But as far as this goes, I could take or leave it. Thankfully, it got much, much better in a hurry after this. Yeah, this, um, this next match, like I wasn't the biggest Triple H fan as a wrestler. He was fine. I understood where he was and his importance and his level on the card a lot of the time. He had some incredible matches and stuff. Overall, it wasn't like a personal favorite of mine. This match, though, for what kind of came afterwards, this is actually one of the more important matches in, in the company's history. You know, th- not quite up with the top few, but just showing Shawn Michaels that he still had it, right? Showing him that he had a second uh, act in his career, that he could come back and do more than this one match. That this That's all this was supposed to be. This was supposed to be a return for one match. It was an unsanctioned match. We got a really cool, well-done video package to set it up. It went all the way back to 1997, 98, when they were in DX. Remember, we have not seen Shawn Michaels since 1998 or 1998 WrestleMania, and that was the last time he wrestled. So um, they joked about or they talked about bringing back DX, and then Triple H turns on him, attacks him, beats him up in the parking lot. Um, Good stuff to lead into this. And Shawn Michaels comes out, massive ovation for Shawn. So he's back. I think he's 37 at this moment. And here come Triple H And Triple H slowly walks into the ring Staring at Sean And then he gets in through the turnbuckle He gets in through the ropes And Sean throws the towel at him And goes right at Triple H And he, he you know, goes after it But Triple H pushes him off And we get a little back and forth uh, Leapfrog by Sean And then a slingshot over the top Um Fun right off the bat, and I and I, it's amazing to think that after all the time off, he comes back and goes almost thirty minutes in this match, and these two guys have a battle. I mean, this was a blast. Early, we get the garbage can, and Triple H drop kicks it, uh, drop kicks Sean into the barricade. They're hitting the trash can lid. Sean skins the cat, uh, which people loved. Uh, off the top rope, double axe handle. He went for uh, a big kick, but Triple H moves and then backbreaker. And so Sean's really selling the back stuff. And we get another big backbreaker and then, uh, you know, whips him into the corner and really hard whips him into the corner. Triple H is doing the suck it. 
chant uh, this and the crotch chops and uh, then he gets a chair really hard shots to Sean's back and looked like you know uh oh maybe Sean came back a little too early um but he gets a roll up then Triple H again starts working him over a big knee to the face DDT on the chair and then Sean's busted open he Triple H gets the belt and starts whipping Sean in the back with it He's punching him in the face with the belt He goes and gets the sledgehammer And then Earl is just getting aggressive He tries to stop him And so Sean's able to get involved now And, and sort of come back to life I, I, gotta, like, I, gotta, I gotta make you pause here What please. did you think of that? Because It is weird the, I don't, yeah. It doesn't make sense in a no DQ match so I know it's, it sort of does in that respect. Just sort of checking also, on him, like in a fight, yeah. you know, like you would see in in UFC or in boxing or something. Yeah. But it also, I also understood it because they're pushing Triple H as this sadistic killer. That depending on what they showed in the recap show, in addition to beating the crap out of Shawn Michaels in the ring, then the next week might have like run him over with a car. I, oh, I, know. I understood what they were trying to do here, but I wanted to get your opinion on that because it did certainly seem like that wasn't necessarily something they had to do. I agree. I don't think it, it was needed. Um, Sean's able to battle back a little bit and the, uh, oh, we get a ref bump here. So Triple H uh, pushes Earl into the ropes And Sean gets crotched on there And then chair shots to the back Backbreaker And big, big HBK chance Triple H goes for a pedigree But Sean's able to fight out of it And he hits a big low blow And they're both down Sort of like, okay, now we can start over again Now we're back to square one again With both of these guys down Uh, Triple H grabs the chair But Sean, big super kick into the chair That uh, Triple H gets knocked down um, both guys are out, and now Triple H is bleeding all over the place. So Sean starts to little by little get back into a rhythm here. Big forearm, and then he kip, then the kip up, um, and the crowd goes wild. They love the kip up. They love the skin the cat. All of Sean's like show off spots from the years before, and he still could show off, no doubt. Um, so we get a chair to the head, but. It didn't really connect. Triple H got the hand up there. So I that one that one I kind of like it didn't bother me seeing some of these chair shots to the head are like eek. This one was just uh it was a working chair shot for sure. Um we get uh Triple H to the floor and the crowd chants we want tables. So um uh JR call so what ends up happening is Sean takes off the boot and he hits Triple H in the head. They called it a heel for a heel, which JR said, which was damn fantastic. Um, Sean with the run around the ring bulldog, which was fun. And the crowd's really loving it right now as Sean is just having a blast. Um, he hits Triple H with a ladder. He, he uh, sends him catapult uh, into the ladder. And now Triple H is really bleeding all over the place. But Triple H actually hits a baseball slide that sort of turns the tide a little bit for him. And Sean gets a big superplex Then a sunset flip uh, Triple H with the high knee I mean all of their major spots And they're they're really really well done um, Triple H goes and gets the bottom part of the steps He brings that into the ring But Sean hits a drop toe hold That sends him head first into the, uh, the steps Then a clothesline to the floor So Sean gets the table And he sets it up And 
um, he ends up hitting him with a fire extinguisher so that way he's laying on the table and he does the big splash off the top through the table crowd loving it there and he sets up a ladder great job by Earl Hebner here Earl's trying to pretend that he's telling Sean not to go up the ladder but he has to hold the ladder just to make sure it stays steady for Sean so he's hey don't you go up this ladder while he's holding it steady for him while he's climbing the thing and uh Sean um hits the elbow off the ladder and then he gets all riled up for sweet chin music but Triple H catches the foot he goes for the pedigree and then Sean Counters it with a pin A bridge and a pin So he gets the win at just Under 28 minutes It was a really fun spot And it's it was it's Unique in a match like this to have A roll up kind of pin For the win right in a no DQ Brawl where they go at it for 30 minutes You don't ever see a roll up Finish no you don't Um I thought this was a Five star match um The thing about Triple H during this time period, it wasn't that he was a bad worker. And this is one of those things that we've talked about with regard to one of Triple H's friends, one big sexy Kevin Nash. It wasn't that there were things he couldn't do and got over push and all that stuff. It was there were things he could do that he didn't. And one of the things that he does in this match as well as he ever has for anybody, he sold everything for Sean. And that was the point of this match, was to get Sean back over, have the best possible match they could to say, hey, listen, this guy can still do this. You know, here's another guy that we've got at our disposal, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Because there was legitimate doubt as to whether or not this was going to be more than a one-shot return. And in fact, Sean wouldn't be full time by his standards until after WrestleMania the following year when he had a really good match against Chris Jericho that we've talked about on this show. But you see what Hunter does in this match. And it's sort of a harsh critique of a guy that in his career has done so many good things and wound up making a lot of guys. But in the mid 2000s, you look around and you wonder, okay. Why couldn't he have done this for Booker T? Why couldn't he have done this for Rob Van Dam? He wouldn't really do this for anybody other than John Cena until almost 10 years later when he gave Jeff Hardy the rub as a singles guy. When Jeff Hardy finally got the main belt. I was going to say, he really didn't do it much. And that was the problem. You're right. Because then you start to see it later with... um, you in know, fairness, even, really quick, in fairness, he made the heck out of Batista too. I don't know how I forgot about that. He did. And you'll see, you know, um, he did he even help guys like Sheamus, right? At the very beginning, Seth Rollins, like you go through Daniel Bryan, obviously, you know, at the beginning of WrestleMania there. So he he did help some, but God, at this point, you're right. It was just I think if there would have been one or two more times where the finishes of some of those matches, the results just went the other way. I think the stigma about him would be a little different if right. just a and few times. Yeah. And every main eventer at some point will have those choices and very few would step up to do the honors for, for other people because of the nature of the business, it's your spot. And by and large, people are very protective of their spots 
unless they're bulletproof. The guy that was probably the least protective of his spot, and this is the one main thing I have against Triple H, okay? There were interviews he cut when he was at the top of the business in the mid-2000s where he tried to say stuff along the lines of, nobody ever laid down for me, and da 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 Oh, excuse me, Mick Foley is on line one. I know. Like, there's just no reason to do that stuff. And thankfully, Triple H has turned into a guy that isn't just making stars in the ring. He's also the guy that's now leading WWE and doing a lot of really cool things. I'm not acting as though Vince McMahon and everything he did was wrong and now everything is light again and all that other stuff. But there's an energy at those shows Mm -hmm. that just hadn't existed before. And as we record this, by the way, there's an NXT show going on that's hyping their Worlds Collide show where they're merging NXT and NXT UK. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen these clips or not, but they've got a whole bunch of old NXT faces coming back and giving like pep talks to everybody. And it's great. It's fantastic. But it's, it's cool to see the stuff Triple H is doing now. It's really cool to see him selling for HBK to try to make him back into a star, which he did, and mission accomplished. They would have a number of very good matches later on in the year. But there was legitimate skepticism at the time of this match. I've mentioned this guy's name on this show before, and I love his writing. I love his work. It's a guy by the name of Scott Keith. And Scott Keith's all-time low moment came after this match. He was a columnist for 411 Mania at the time, back when they were doing a lot, and I mean a lot, of wrestling coverage. It was just wall-to-wall stuff. He put together this big rant about who does this help because Triple H was bulletproof at this point, and nobody knew if Shawn Michaels was coming back. Yeah. But you take that, and you also take into consideration the fact that Mr. Keith is a very proud Canadian and was a very proud Brett guy. Okay, I not, like him even not, more now. Not not one of his finest moments. And that rant is, to his credit, by the way, I give him some crap for this, but to his undying credit, that rant is still up on the 411 Mania recap of that show that he wrote. He didn't go back and revise anything. It's still there. So props to him for that. But he gave this match four stars because Michaels wound up winning. It's a five-star match. There's not anything in this match that I would not change. And the one thing that stood out to me above all else, 12 minutes into the match, Triple H hooks an abdominal stretch, the most basic move in the history of professional wrestling. No one, and I mean no one, sells an abdominal stretch. No one. Because of the psychology that goes into this match, That is booked as a killer submission move. And you see Shawn Michaels writhing in pain as Triple H clamps it on and grabs the ropes. And you hear JR, who, by the way, is in his element in this match, just illustrating how much pain Shawn Michaels is in. He is pleading with Shawn to give up and fight another day, saying, you've done enough. You came back after four years. It is so perfect. And I was looking for something to nitpick in this match. And, Gino, I found nothing. It was a masterpiece. He said, in 25 years, I've never seen as much courage and will to win. And then after the match, Sean has, like, a moment with Earl where he gives him a kiss. And then Triple H with the sledgehammer 
from behind and what shot. A dick. Sean just goes down <laughs> and Triple H does. Uh, Sean doesn't even get the chance to celebrate his moment on the comeback and Triple H in the back again, over and over Earl's calling for help. Triple H is doing the cross chop, uh, the crotch chop over him. And Jr. says, I refuse to believe what I've seen. That son of a bitch hit him with a sledgehammer. And it's just so like, he's screaming it. He's so passionate. And it was fantastic. It was great stuff. And and not long after this, Triple H ends up becoming the world heavyweight champion when they need a world champion for Raw's brand. So he ends up becoming the guy shortly after this that has the, for the first time when there's actually two championship, two main championships, world titles in WWE. Yeah. Um, and that was when there are people that use the term reign of terror. And I think that's a stretch, but you see that. And again, we've talked about this. There was a stretch in Oh three or Oh four where it really was the triple H show. And if heel triple H didn't do anything for you, it was probably not appointment viewing for you. It was something very different to what SmackDown under Booker Paul Heyman, by the way, was putting forth. There were a collection of wrestlers known as the SmackDown Six, which included Edge, Mysterio, both Guerreros, Voldemort, and gosh, there, there, there was one other guy that's, uh, that I'm forgetting at the moment that I'm sure is going to hit me like a ton of bricks. Edge but, Mysterio. Edge Mysterio. Uh, both Guerreros, Eddie and Chavo. Uh, and Voldemort, Kurt. And Kurt, yes. Yeah. They called them the SmackDown Six because you could throw any two of those six out there for 20 minutes and you'd get something great. And those shows were were phenomenal television. And it presented a real contrast to what was going on at Raw at the time. And as Paul Heyman gleefully points out on his DVD series, Nitro wasn't the only wrestling show to beat Raw. SmackDown did and did so pretty consistently for a little while. It's... Sean gets stretchered out. Chip the JR. Triple H is gonna rot in hell. What he did tonight. Do you not have a soul, so you son good. of a bitch? So good. Do you realize what you've just done? Um uh, it was good. Just great stuff. And we need a little cool down after that before the main event. So here's the fink. Here's the thing. <laughs> he says, I have to get a few things off my chest. And they're doing the heel Finkel at this time, which it's like, come on. Anyone who knows anything about the Fink, he was apparently like the sweetest and most loyal guy and like one of the best soldiers ever for the company. And and you have the Fink out there as a heel. It's just like when they tried to do it with JR. It's like, no, you don't need that. But he's out here healing it up. And he says, even though MLB might be going on strike, WWE fans will always have the Fink. And uh, here comes Trish. Wow. Good she Lord. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go deeper than that out, out of out of respect for, for any female listeners. No, but she looks fantastic. Good, that's, good Lord. That's it's nothing. Nothing wrong with saying how incredible she looks. And she looks so good now. We were talking about it. She is in great shape and she's just on raw two weeks ago. She can still wow. go. Wow. She looks great. 
So if they wanted to re-sign her to a full-time deal, I am not kidding on this. She could be the women's champion and carry it. Because, it, look, we, we talk about the look, and Trish had it from the moment she stepped through the curtain the first time. She turned into a world-class worker. And one of the things that I had actually sent over to, to you and a couple other people earlier, somebody pushed out a poll and said, you can build your women's division around 25-year-old versions of either Trish Stratus or Sasha Banks, and they're going to be your bedrocks for the next decade plus. Who do you want? Seeing Trish at SummerSlam 2019 against Charlotte, you're telling me she couldn't work with the ones now at in her prime, arguably? No, she could have done anything you asked her to do. So Trish comes out, and she she slapped Fink a few weeks ago because he was being stupid, and then she pushed him in the mud the week before. Of course, so, of course. So she comes out there to say uh, to apologize, but Fink says he calls the crowd Long Island skanks, and he says you can't interrupt me. But she wants to apologize. She said, Howard, you have a sexy voice. And he said, I know. And Trish, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And you've got the puppies. And I've got my wiener. Yeah, that's Howard said that. And uh, what was funny is you could tell that it it was like a Saturday Night Live sketch where Trish couldn't even keep it together because it was like, I cannot believe Howard just said that. Actually, you know, like, and she was like grinning more than she should have been mad at someone for saying that because it was like, oh my God, poor Howard had to actually say this, really? And he just leans into it and she says, yes, you do, Howie. And she gives him a hug. Uh, she said, but the real surprise is Lillian Garcia, who shows up behind and they kick him in the balls and push him over. So this was just to, to get some, uh, to get some stink on the think. Here, but uh, man, Howard and his wiener. Yep my my notes for this segment are well that was a thing that happened. Yes, yes. Um, okay, let's get to our main event now. Please, thankfully, SmackDown thank God. Thank God. team of uh, Cole and Taz, and we get a video package for The Rock versus Lesnar, and there wasn't much build or there wasn't much story between these two guys. Brock was very new. Coming in, but I did like the way they they showed the video package too with just these guys training workouts and stuff. It made it seem real for Brock, who we knew was a real athlete, and the Rock, who people knew was a, a a very good athlete himself. So Brock Lesnar comes out first with Paul Heyman, and then the Rock with a big uh, big cheers for the Rock. He puts the title down. He runs to the ring, and we get uh, big punches. Uh, belly to belly from Brock And then a couple backbreakers And the the crowd pretty early on Andrew they turn on the rock They start chanting Rocky sucks Here um, And it was Brock was I mean a heel but the thing about Brock was he wasn't like A, a cheap heel Or a dastardly heel he, he was just a heel because he was aligned With Paul Heyman the guy was a badass and those are the guys that always inevitably have to turn babyface because the crowd just loves them so much if they're not doing evil things. And 
I mean, Lesnar looked great here, and and The Rock was just flipping like a fish all over the place, making him look like a million bucks. Heyman's like taking cheap shots. He kicks The Rock at one point, and then again, Heyman gets like a like a little headlock in, like a little chin lock at, at one point too. Um, and referees letting him go outside all over. This was like that WWE style main event of this era, like an Austin style main event where they could just kind of go outside for a while and. Uh, Brock with a big power slam uh, Tackle He's working on the ribs And finally Rock's able to move And get a little flurry with the belly to belly And then a cool spot Where they both do a kip up At the same time And they look at each other And it's like oh okay Um, So Cole says that if Lesnar wins Heyman will become a millionaire And Taz says well, that's good. He owes a lot of people, so that's a good thing. Which I, I he, Taz had a couple of really good lines in this match, and you could tell he loved having the freedom to go at his old boss. It, it was pretty funny. Um, so uh, there's a, a spot that uh, a leg whip that kind of looked bad because Brock sort of lands on the Rock's legs, and then Rock ends up putting on a, a sharpshooter that never looks very good. Um, no. and the, Crowds chanting, let's go Lesnar Heyman gets up on the apron And then The Rock tosses him in And uh, he goes to set up a rock bottom But Brock comes from behind To the back And uh, he gets a chair As Heyman distracts the ref And Brock hits Rock uh, with the chair And then we get a big bear hug Uh, The belly to back suplex While holding on The crowd's really getting into Lesnar here he slows it down, works on the bear hug for a while. Rock fights out of it, and now the crowd's actually chanting for the Rock. Um, Heyman again gets up on the apron, and the ref goes over there. But Rock, uh, Rock hits Lesnar in the balls. Um, then we get a shoulder tackle from Brock. Rock with a. I love when Rock explodes out of the corner. It was always a really cool spot when he would come flying out with a clothesline, and uh, he hit the big spit punch. And um, crowds now getting back in the Rock's corner They head over to the Spanish announce table Rock with a big clothesline And then a catapult And he- uh, Brock gets sent right into the ring post The uh, Rock actually puts Paul Heyman Through the announce table With a rock and, bottom And Taz loves it Taz is <laughs> yelling does. Hallelujah there is a god It was funny <laughs> It was a great spot And uh, awesome stuff from Heyman here um, now Brock tosses uh, Brock back in the ring and he hits a rock bottom for two really cool kick out spot. Let's go Lesnar chance all over the place. Uh, Brock actually hits a rock bottom himself. It was pretty good too. And then, uh, spine buster from the rock. He went to go for the people's elbow. He runs the ropes, but Les Brock, um, uh, jumps up and hits a huge clothesline. He goes for an F5, Rock counters out of it He goes for a rock bottom, Brock counters out of that And then Lesnar into the F5, big F5 And he covers the rock for a 1-2 and a 3 This thing went just about 16 minutes And we have a new WWE champion, Brock Lesnar Who was literally a rookie here And he just takes down the rock This was fun It's not... Technically a five star match Or as classic as in ring But The Rock was good in these main event matches He knew how to sell, he knew how to make guys The matches always felt fun And big and important And 
it was a big this is a huge deal for him. This, this is what made Brock Lesnar. I mean, getting a win like this over the rock right off the bat in your first chi- like big title match, boom. Now sky's the limit for this guy. And we still talk about Brock Lesnar as being one of the more unique stars. And I actually think he's gonna go down as like very underrated. Because I think when people talk about like all-time greats and lists, nobody's ever going to mention Brock Lesnar. A lot of people don't. He doesn't even really get brought up in conversations. I'm not saying he's the greatest of all time or anything. But when you look at drawing and what he's done a couple different times, even recently, he's had a really fun run as a babyface over the last year or so, which I don't, I don't know if he had that in him. I didn't really think that he had that in him to do. So, you know, this was a good... A good night for Brock Lesnar And uh, 20 years later You know we still see them call on Brock Anytime they need some help There has never been Nor will there ever be A guy like Brock Lesnar No. Let's just outline this career arc Okay He's a college wrestler One of the best in the country Gets recruited by WWE Goes down to developmental And according to Paul Heyman Gets some of the worst advice In the history of wrestling Heyman gets in his ear. Lesnar winds up getting called up. Heyman gets put with Lesnar. Strap the rocket to him. For two years, he's one of the WWE's biggest stars at a time when wrestling is still in a boom period. He winds up going through personal stuff. He winds up getting burned out. There's some issues with pills and with alcohol by the end of it. And he ultimately decides, I need to not wrestle for a while. Leaves wrestling. Tries out for the Minnesota Vikings after not having played organized football (laughs) since I believe it was high school for him. I might be wrong on that. He's one of the last guys cut before the start of the season. He winds up lasting a couple of rounds of cuts into the preseason, winds up going to Japan, then decides, you know, there's a lot of money in this UFC stuff. Goes into the octagon. Total rookie gets put in some of the biggest drawing matches to that point (laughs) in the history of UFC, picks it up very fast, winds up being the UFC world heavyweight champion, almost dies of diverticulitis. Seriously, read up on that. It's scary stuff. Winds up aging a little bit to where UFC full-time is no longer a viable option for him. Who comes calling? Here's Vince McMahon back into the WWE ring. And he winds up getting paid a metric ton of money to work 10% of the dates that a full-time superstar does. And in doing so, has headlined some of the biggest shows on the planet, has worked fantastic matches with everybody from Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins to AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, whatever the hell you want to call him. We're never going to see another Brock Lesnar. We might see another Shawn Michaels. We might see another Triple H. We'll we'll see another Goldberg at some point. We'll see another Steve Austin. We might even see another Rock. We're not going to see a career arc that Brock, that Brock Lesnar had. He is the Akeem Olajuwon of professional wrestling in that Olajuwon got plucked out of Nigeria as a soccer player, wound up growing to seven feet, takes a plane ride into the United States, winds up going to Houston because it's warm and not cold, winds up starring for Fi Slamajam and becomes a Hall of Famer with the Rockets. We're not going to see a career like that. And this match here 
was The Rock doing everything possible to put Lesnar over, partially because he knew Lesnar was indeed the next big thing, and also because, as The Rock just recently put this on his social media, he had basically decided that this was going to be his last match as a full-timer on the roster. He would come back for a couple more WrestleManias before going on the extended sabbatical in which he became one of the biggest stars on the planet. This was the last match he'd have before embarking on that movie career. He'd come back and he'd work with Austin. He'd come back and he'd work with Mick Foley to face off against Evolution, that two-on-three match at WrestleMania 20. But this was pretty much it for The Rock. And he left everyone with no doubt as to how great the great one was. This is a, it's not a five-star match. I added it three and three quarters. If you want yeah, to go up to three four, and a half I'm plus, not, I yeah, agree. I'm not going to begrudge you if you go up to four or so. It's a lot of fun. The ending sequence, that last minute is rapid fire with really good timing and everyone needing to be in the exact right place at the exact right time for it to work. Heyman was great but, in here too. Yep. All throughout the match, jumping yeah. up on the thing, the bumps that he took, he was, he was, he did it. He did his part. It's like Paul he always Heyman. Of course he's going to be you know, good. You know, he's and the thing it. that I loved Lesnar only needed one F five. I agree. Now it's now it's one F five and you become a win eligible. Now, yeah. But at that point, one F five Lesnar's a killer. Here's the next guy. And for how it went over the next year and a half, largely well, horrible ending. You couldn't have started it on more solid footing than what Rock and Brock did in the main event of SummerSlam 2002. Now, when you look back at this card, the two matches that you would say aren't good to very good matches are the matches with the Un-Americans, and honestly, neither one of them is bad. No. They're just not they're just not quite as important and, and or again, quite as good. And it's not my cup of tea either, so no. maybe my perception's a little bit colored. So for as far as like a top to bottom show is concerned, there are not many shows that have a floor this high where right. that's as bad as you're going to get what we saw in those matches, which where the work was perfectly fine. Like they're two and a half star ish matches that are basic formula matches. And, you know, you get Undertaker a win. And, and then the other tag was a, a basic tag where they had all the, the, the logical tag spots. This is a good show. Top to bottom, like you said, a lot of things I like about it that the pace is quick, it's under three hours, not a whole lot of crap, urgency, urgency, urgency throughout. <laughs> um, this was a good one. This was a good SummerSlam, and, and this is one of the better SummerSlams, no doubt. If this is anyone's personal favorite, I can see why, because it's just not a whole lot of bad throughout the show. And these are the wrestling shows that I like. Not all of them can have multiple five-star matches, but when the floor is high... That's fun throughout because you don't have to like start to go, oh, no, I know it's coming next or, oh, no, that's going to be awful. Yeah, that's for sure. This was a lot of fun. I'm happy you picked this show. It's a shame Darren couldn't enjoy it with us. But, oh, darn, he's at Disney. Just yeah, a horrible, 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 miserable place and a miserable fate befalls our friend. Get well soon. Thoughts and prayers, buddy. <laughs> OK, so you have the pick for our next show, Andrew. Tell us where we're headed. I've already mentioned it, actually, if you'd been eagle-eared and uh, listening to some of the things that I mentioned. We're going to go to a more recent edition of SummerSlam. We're going to focus on SummerSlam 2019. This is a show that should have been huge from a history perspective and was not. The main event of that show is one Brock Lesnar 
against Seth Rollins for the Universal title. And that should have been Brock Lesnar once and for all making Seth Rollins a gigantic star. And for about five minutes, that's what happened until Hell in a Cell rolled around just a little while later and undid not just that match, but the debut of The Fiend, which occurred on this same show. There's other really good stuff. We're going to take a look at Charlotte Flair against Trish Stratus in what is one of the best women's matches of the last five years. There's also an excellent match between Natalia and Becky Lynch to kick off the show. We get Dolph Ziggler bumping like a madman for Goldberg, which is wildly entertaining. There's an AJ Styles ricochet match on Mm -hmm. the show. That's not bad either. It's a fun show that should have meant more than it does. And we're going to have a lot of fun diving into all the reasons WWE dropped the ball after this show in a couple of weeks when this comes out. So we head to SummerSlam 2019, just a few years back on the next edition of the old wrestling rewatch. Andrew, winding down uh, the meet at Saratoga, tell us where we can find uh, all of the work and uh, all of the good content that you're going to be producing for the uh, the next couple of weeks and uh, and leading on past Saratoga. If a horse at Saratoga runs second, chances are you can find my work close (laughs) by. Um, No, uh, Saratoga is winding down. We're recording this August 30th. Of course, that meet runs up through Labor Day, which is six days from now. AndrewChampagne.com has all of that information. Got to tell you, sort of looking forward to the end of the meet where I can like hibernate and get off of horse racing Twitter for a little while. It's exhausting, man. It yeah. really, truly is. But uh, it's been uh, it's been a fun meet. Was privileged to be able to get up there for a couple of days, see some people. I was there for Ness's big win in the Alabama. Still think that Epicenter would have kicked her butt going ten furlongs in the Travers and might have inflated Epicenter's price just a little bit. But having said that, good meet. You can check out all my stuff at andrewchampagne.com, at andrewchampagne on Twitter, at 142winners over on Instagram. A lot of really cool stuff happening. A lot of things that I've squeezed into the last month between that, a move to another apartment, trip back east. Not a lot of sleep going on here, but, you know, that's nothing new. Andrew, buddy, thank you so much. This was a fun one to discuss, and I look forward to talking SummerSlam 2019 again with you next week. So, folks. Make sure to give Andrew a follow, and if you ever want to go back and listen, you can check out yeah, almost 80 different re- wrestling rewatches that we have. until syndication, yeah, baby! We are all <laughs> over the place, from WWE to the old WWF, WCW, NWA. We've got some AWA in there also. We've got a Lucha Underground HW show W and a Lucha Underground, yeah, we've got them all in there a little bit of everything so if you're a wrestling fan you will enjoy thank you so much buddy i'll talk to you again next week i think dz will be back with us next week and uh, don't go anywhere folks still a lot more to discuss on this episode that's gonna do it for this episode of that's what g said but we'll be back in just a few days with football nfl week one game by game breakdowns we'll also get you set up for all the big weekend racing from del mar and then we'll bounce around to other big stakes action we'll have louisiana downs for you in their final few weeks Folks, thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks to Tim Kelly for helping us out with the She-Hulk deep dives. Thanks to Andrew Champagne for helping us with the old wrestling rewatch. We'll be back in just a few days with a lot more. That's what she said.